Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This month we interview director-writer Philip Stubbs about his movie Last Chancers. Lucy tells us about Fright Fest, and no, I won't be going. And in our movie news this month, Graham gets to talk about his favourite subject, I wonder what that is. Neil goes to war, and I return to Wales. Unfortunately, you came back, Jeff. Our movie reviews are Slaughterhouse Rules from Neil, Peterloo from Jeff, and I talk about Widows. After that, we talk about what else we've been watching, and then the excitement drops off a cliff as Jeff reveals his latest movie quiz. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests, as I've said many times, are political and horror movies. Wow, guys, it's like November 2018 was made just for me. There are political films, Peter Lou and Widows, more on those later, and horror, Overlord and Suspiria. Nothing more to say on those, as of course, you two won't watch them. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Although I'm tempted to watch Superior with you, Jeff, as long as you pay for the dry cleaning for my trousers. Hi, my name's Neil, and I watch most films. According to Jeff, Superior is a musical set around a dance company. Good job I always check. <laughs> Neil, are you telling me that I was given fake news about Superior? No. Yes. No, to be fair, that comment is a good example of what normally happens at this point of the podcast. We, or I, go into a bit of a ramble which normally involves me coming out with topical jokes and relate them to Neil. Not this month. In fact, this month, I have some good and bad news. And surprisingly, the good news involves Neil. I'm worried already. Do you know what's coming, Graham? Not a clue, mate. (laughs) Although my finger is hovering over the sensor button. I'm just shocked as to how little you two trust me. We We aren't. (laughs) I suppose I'd better put you out of your misery. Graham, hand me the shotgun. (laughs) You see how easy it is just to slip into a cheap joke at Neil's expense? Sorry, Neil. No, you're not. Actually, you're right. Okay, let's be serious for a moment. Whereas I will bitch and moan about how this country is heading into a Mad Max-style world, David Davis's words, not mine, remember him, (laughs) Neil stands up and fights for it. He is our leading campaigner for the people's vote, even contacting local MPs. Well done, Neil. Great work. Shame about their reply. (laughs) In Graham's eyes, you've almost become a superhero, and you know what I think of them. Damn, that just slipped out. Please make sure we're recording this, Graham. (laughs) So let's move on to the bad news, which has nothing to do with Neil. Yes. I've been telling some of our listeners about Mark Commode agreeing to hold a brief interview with us about his fantastic genre TV show. Unfortunately, despite that initial agreement, Mr Commode has become rather elusive when I've been trying to plan the interview with him. So my apologies to you all out there for building your hopes up on this. And next time, I've learnt my lesson, we'll get the interview completed before I start bragging. (laughs) Back to the good news as Graham provides some listener comments about the last show. Indeed, thank you for taking the time to write to us. From Deck, loved the interview with Nick. How about adding some dialogue clips to your film reviews? Yes, Deck, we are looking into that. And about the first man review, Deck says, Good to see more listener comments and proves everyone has different tastes, which is good for discussing films. From Phil the Bear, he also really liked Nick's interview and really enjoyed the on-set piece about Last Chancers. For First Man, Phil is in the love camp, not so much with Bad Day 
at the El Royale. Phil, mate, that's one of the few times I have to disagree with you. Well, Phil counters by saying your quiz this month was easy. It wasn't that easy. Neil struggled. <laughs> Finally <Okay>. from... <laughs> And with the quiz. <laughs> oh, dear. Finally, from Phil, some very positive feedback about our listener comments pod short. He liked Sarah's joke about her husband's middle name. Thank you. And he got some interesting ideas for new shows to watch. Before handing over to Jeff for the quiz, which I will not be nasty about this month, as he hasn't insulted me much yet, uh, just a word of thanks to Deck and Phil Stubbs for your continuing support for our Twitter feed. Thanks a lot, guys. OK, Jeff, quickly deal with the quiz before my good mood evaporates. Thank you, Neil. You see how polite I am to you there? <laughs> Now, if you can remember that far back, the question was a game of connections, four sets of actors and actresses, and for each one, I would like the name of the film they appeared in together. However, it was been pointed out by a listener that for one of the questions, there are in fact two answers. Sorry about that, and we'll quote them both. So, the first connection was Tom Hanks and Amy Adams. Charlie Wilson's War. Amy Adams and Christian Bale. The Fighter and American Hustle. Christian Bale and Anne Hathaway. The Dark Knight Rises. Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey. Interstellar. Enough preamble nonsense. Graham, let's start the show. Play that funky music, Graham. (laughs) Last month, as Phil Foster has already mentioned, we reported from the set of Last Chancers while it was shooting in Cheltenham. This month, we go one better. After that exhaustive film production, we caught up with Phil Stubbs to talk about his inspiration for the film, the hard work that has gone into it so far, and what the next steps in the movie development process are. There are some pictures from the interview which we've put up with the show notes. You will see that it took place in a pub. Only Jeff can get us into a bar, which stayed locked for all the time we were there. Take it away, sober Jeff. Hello and welcome to an At The Flicks interview. Here for the first time ever, we have a genuine film director to talk to us about the filmmaking process. Welcome to the show, Mr Phil Stubbs. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. So Phil, you've had a very busy year directing your first film, Last Chances, which we reported on our movie news section last month. So firstly, thank you very much for allowing us to come to your set. But let's go back over the whole history of this filmmaking process. No, I understand from previous conversations we've had, you've been working on this script for a number of years. Has it changed over that time? Uh, yeah, it changed a lot. When it first started, I didn't, I didn't know how to format scripts. It actually turned out to be 35 minutes long from beginning to end, and I realised I needed to learn a lot of things, so I bought screenwriting books and uh, screenwriting software. I realised I had to put a lot more material in and actually have three acts, and then, then it became 90 minutes after a lot of work and a lot more story. There was about 400 drafts, which is a lot. 400 drafts? Yes. Over what period of time? It's about four and a half years. But I, I just constantly worked on it. What would you say are your main influences for your script? I want it to be about two friends, two male friends over the age of 25. Beyond that, I wasn't really thinking too much of specific influences, but... There's no doubt I realise now that you can't help but be influenced by films. It's definitely creeped in there, and it's With Nell and I is a strong one. In Bruges is another one, even though that's about, it's obviously a very violent comedy, but it's, it has elements. Brilliant violent. It's, it's, it's one of my favourite films. Yeah. Um, some, a lot of people say to me, oh, it's just like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, and I don't really agree. 
I think it's just because it's a comedic film about two males, I think, is why people say that. But apart from that, there's loads of influences that I didn't realise. Sometimes I didn't realise until I was on set. Like, uh, before we met you, we were on the, this woodland road, and our two characters look at each other and look behind them, and they get all scared. And I said, this is American Wealth in London. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't realise until I was actually filming it. I was like, oh, this is so much. Don't go on the moors, lads. Yeah. yeah. And my half my crew went, I haven't seen that. Which <laughs> yeah. uh, made, made me slightly yeah. annoyed. Yeah, it's when they saw something my dad or granddad told me about. Yeah, yeah it's great. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there's loads of, lots of, inf- there's probably more influences than I can even, I, I even realise. I mean, okay. if you think about it, the scene you watched, two people put on masks or a disguise to get into somewhere with people in that same disguise that's Star Wars you know there's, there's yeah. just so many things you could say yeah. it was from sub- subliminally without giving the game away what can you say about the plot and the setup of the plot okay the main character is Flynn who is over 30 he's really struggling he's about to lose his flat he, he's, he's trying to find a job and he's a, but unfortunately for him he has a friend of many many years who gets into trouble and he's just got them into the biggest trouble with a local gangster I certainly can testify to that what we saw being filmed. <laughs> yeah. So you've got, your, you've got your idea, you've got your script, so now you've got the process of setting up the film. How do you go about getting your cast and crew? It's a long process because yeah. I was working on the script for about a year and a half Then I thought, I need to learn how to do filmmaking. I went to film school for three years, which was invaluable at Gloucestershire College. Luckily, I got to direct the first film, which was I made a World War I short film. And then one of my classmates was my producer for Last Chances. In our last year, before we'd even made the, the, the graduation film, we decided we were already working on getting Last Chances made and putting all that pre-production into place and casting. And so it was a very long process. But basically, it's taken me four years plus to get to this point, and it's still not finished. No, we're into, <laughs> into editing now, aren't we? Yeah. It's Lucy's role, I think. Lucy Keel, yeah, she's, yeah. Uh, she's a very talented editor. So let's talk about that team then, particularly at the moment behind the camera then. So okay. you, you want to get your, again, we, we met some very talented and some very enthusiastic people that night. And they're really good from assistant directors to Adam, the sound, the sound recordist to Lucy. How do you find these people? How do you well, find them? This is, this is a, a, a bit of a plug, but Rich Burtonshaw, our DP, he has this company called Total Film Crew. And, and basically you get the whole film crew at once. Wow. All right. okay. But that's quite a unique thing. Yeah. Because normally in films you have to find that person there, yes. that person over there, that person there recommended someone else. But they came as a package, which was very handy. And um, Are they local? Yeah. Total Film Crew. They, they, they are, I can't recommend them highly enough. I mean, you, met, you saw them in action. Yeah. Absolutely. They are fantastic. The film probably wouldn't have been possible without them. It wouldn't have been the same. It would have been me on a little DSLR or something. But they yeah. were fantastic. And... How did you find out about them? Well, we know we know Rich because Rich used to go to this. He left the university I went to before I got there, but he knew Ben, the producer. And as soon as Ben was on board, Ben Kiprinid is the producer. He said, "Rich is our man," and he was. We hadn't done anything. He said, "Rich is the guy," and he was right because they did a fantastic job. They must be in a lot of demand. Oh yeah, they are. Yeah, I think they're pretty, they're constantly busy. Not but so I think right. this is their third feature film. But I think this one will... I haven't seen the other two, but I think once, once people see the work they did on this one, they're going to be even more in demand because yeah. it was just fantastic. I'm amazed already into this interview. Do you think you can get the whole behind-the-scenes crew together yeah. like that in one go? Yep. 
and to that level of quality is excellent. Yeah. You, you, you've got your script, you've got your crew, you know what you want to film. How do you work out where you film it? Uh, locations actually takes a long time, especially in a feature film. I mean, most of my short films, like At Dawn, uh, is in one location because it's just everything's the whole story is set in one place. Yeah. Uh, but Last Chances has got about 18 different locations, I think. For instance, we booked Manor by the Lake in February. So that shows you how long ago we were doing stuff and making sure we had all the locations ready. And it, the story is set in a small town surrounded by hills, so places with hills in the background. Right. Um, I knew what kind of place I wanted him to live in, so we've hired an Airbnb as his flat and filmed in it. It was all filmed on location, because in, in feature films, they, at the end they go, filmed on location, which means yeah. no studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no studio on this. It's entirely like a, like a Ken Loach or a Mike Lee film. It's um, all on location. It's all yeah. real places. Not one bit of it was in a studio. What intrigues me, particularly with the, Man, the Man Above the Lake, uh, which is an incredible location. So you booked that in February mm-hmm. for a shoot in October. Yep. What if something had slipped in the meantime or other things? Well, I was determined that we were filming on those dates no matter what. Because if we'd have lost dates, we'd have lost actors, we'd have lost crew. And I just was very, and Ben, but I was very, very, very determined. You've got your locations, you've got your crew, now you're going to get your cast. And as you say, by this stage, you've got everything sorted, but you haven't got your cast. So what's the process you go through to get the people you want? It's a long process. The first thing was, I knew that the main character would be an actor that we'd worked with before. So Ellis J. Wells as Flynn. So we just sent this random email. Hi, Ellis. We'd like to cast you as the lead in our feature film. (laughs) Completely out of the blue. Yeah. (laughs) And he could have said, what? Who are you? He's a very nice guy. And me me and him met for coffee. He didn't even read the script. He said, I'll do it because he just was up for the challenge. And then I sent him the script. He loved the script. So it was all from there. But the other roles, I didn't know who could play Aiden, the friend who's a bit kind of chaotic. They send you videos on the uh, audition website and uh, we watched every single one because it was only fair. And there was great auditions, but Harry's, he got the role Harry Dyer. Yeah. He had us laughing within three seconds, laughing out loud. And then within 15 seconds, we were laughing even more. And then you have to find out if these people are available. You say, we'd love to give you the role. But they could easily say, because actors have got a very... They're constantly changing their schedules to get their work. So but luckily, he was available. Yeah, we chatted to him. I thought it was really, nice, really oh, he's nice great. chat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he is. He's a great, great, great actor. His comic timing is uh, something... Yeah. He's a comedian as well, isn't he? He's not just yeah. an actor. Yeah. I think that's probably why his comic timing is fantastic. Yeah. Um, for the role of Pointer, the big bad gangster, we knew we needed somebody with a lot of screen presence and gravitas to my amazement Brian Croucher he kind of applied and I just thought I know him I know his work I can't believe he's applying for this and then Brian being old school just sent me a message saying ring me and uh, because he does phone calls he doesn't do emails and things that much sorry Brian but he doesn't (laughs) Uh, but that was great and we just had long 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 conversations on the phone and he he loved the script he had suggestions for the character which improved it made it more three-dimensional and stuff like that and you know with his experience I'm going to listen yeah (laughs) because there's nothing he hasn't done in the last probably five decades plus TV film he's Blake Seven Blake Seven Doctor Who EastEnders EastEnders, The Bill yeah we had a great relationship on the phone and um, and Lisa who you met Lisa Ronigan who plays Jen the role of Jen had hundreds of audition videos as well we watched all of them but Lisa's was just yeah like A just so funny she's got great comic timing but great screen presence and so yeah so that so the cast came together and then we just 
and to this day I still think that's a really strong cast well I think from the little that we've seen the, the comic time in between Ellis and Harry is spot on it's really good yeah and yeah, we've spoken about influences, but one of the influences that come through for me was Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, Brian said the same thing. Which uh, Brian, when we're doing the, a very important scene with uh, Pointer and Flynn and Aiden, he said the same thing about them, Laurel and Hardy. Which is interesting. As a kid, I used to love watching yeah. tons yeah. of Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. So there's a lot more physical comedy in this film than I anticipated as well, which I like. Oh, but it's, it's yeah. the stuff that happens that's not exactly in the script, but it just happens naturally. And, it, and those two had a lot of physical comedy, which yeah. I think ties in with what you're saying. And they did it so naturally and so brilliantly, hoping that audiences find that really funny and endearing. Well, I'd say everything we've seen so far has yeah. been been really, really good. We'll go forward into, into the shooting. So you had um, a ridiculous shoot of three weeks, 20, 21 days. Yes, exactly. Uh, where most films like that would get at least six weeks at least six double weeks. what what you've what you've had it was crazy 12 hour days six days a week and which is normal for a film set 12 hour days but our only day off was after the night shoot so that wasn't technically a day off yeah <laughs> but it was a, but you know for budget reasons obviously it's a very micro budget film for a feature film but uh, yeah we had to we had to do it in a very short space of time and that's why I realise now why so many low-budget first-time feature films are set in one room. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly why. So during that time of the actual shoot, you had everything lined up, you got your locations, and the weather was perfect. It was. For most of it. And those last couple of days, and I'm very conscious I don't want to give any of the plot away here, we had the storm that hit, yep. and then we had a weekend of rain, and those were your last three, four days. Yeah, all outdoors. All, all out- outdoors. All outdoor scenes on top of a hill and it was difficult to say the least um, I felt bad for the actors but uh, it's going to look incredible on camera but it was incredibly difficult because he didn't let up it was just no. constant heavy rain but yeah it should look great on camera but no it wasn't pleasant <laughs> so you were able to flip that scene because I imagine in your mind it would all been done in bright sunlight yes well, the whole uh, point of being on the hill for me was to have these spectacular views behind the characters and now there's no view and they're soaked in heavy rain but that adds a different element I think Christopher Nolan once said if it's raining when you shoot then the scene is now set in the rain and it's he's absolutely right especially with his low budget yeah because on big budget films like Lord of the Rings they had wet weather days it's like oh it's raining we'll do that indoor scene instead well we didn't have the option because we don't have that location we don't have the money to go indoors so it was my worst nightmare in terms of conditions but in the film it's, it's going to look like we planned it because it is the big finale yeah and to have that in pouring dramatic rain it's going to add something in a sense we were lucky that it rained consistently because if it if actually it was weird because the day before it kind of cleared up enough for a different scene that we happened to be filming set at a different time in the film and then when it was raining we were filming this one scene that was all one long sequence so our continuity was good but yeah if it suddenly stopped raining halfway through that sequence but we know, in a sense we were lucky it was continuous so yeah. we had no continuity problems but it was just and that, that was going to be my next question because everything on a film was filmed out of sequence yes did that cause any havoc with continuity uh, I don't think we actually had a continuity person which I meant to have because of, again budget reasons but our camera crew and set designers and everyone was very on the ball with costume and everything they were fantastic too so it was never a problem it was just for me with where the characters are at at the story I would have to occasionally remind the actors this is now act three you're not in the same 
space as you were in Act One. And Act One, your character's much more cheerful. This this is Act Three. You've been through a lot. So, mm. and in films, like, characters tend to slow down in Act Three. Things get moodier. Things get okay. You can see characters normally they're different to what they were in Act One. I think what's going to be interesting certainly for a lot of our listeners is that you use a lot of locations around Gloucestershire mainly Cheltenham and Tewkesbury yeah is there anything you can talk about that's going to be iconic that's going to be in there well we wanted I wanted to show areas of Cheltenham that you don't normally see on camera because it's it's always like the races is always the first thing anyone says about Cheltenham which bothers me secondly I didn't want to show the promenade or the you know Cheltenham has a reputation for being posh around the country and I wanted to show it's not all like that no. And it suits the characters' stories as well that they're not in posh circumstances. So, um, yeah, I was really glad to show Cheltenham. Most of the film is in Cheltenham. Only a couple of bits are in Tewkesbury. But we don't really see... We were going to film another shot in Tewkesbury, actually, and we realised it, it just looks like a different town. OK. Even though, even though Last Chances is set in a fictional town, it's not actually set in Cheltenham, which is important. Yeah. But it was filmed in Cheltenham because we want the look but we realised Tewkesbury just looks like a different town it just doesn't you know I love Tewkesbury but it just does not look the same yeah. the, the architecture is just completely different and, and it's interesting I mean earlier this year Kira Knight filmed Official Secrets by Catherine Voss who uh, GCHQ and that was all filmed in Yorkshire yeah exactly that's, <laughs> that's why I wanted to film in Cheltenham and uh, around the St Paul's area of Cheltenham near the brewery yeah that side of Cheltenham really mostly and certainly around St Paul's there are some interesting looking places around there. yeah definitely uh, oh pitfall park which actually we did a lot of cheating of locations like we'd use the outside of a location which isn't which ties with another place but it's actually two miles away so bits of pitfall park we made to look like a hill which it does um, you know, things like that um, mm-hmm. it's raining on that day too but that now ties in with our rainy hill days but. excellent so, so you're in a unique position you're filming something that you've written yes that you've thought about for a long time yes would you imagine that being very different if you were directing somebody else's script? I think it'd be very different. But I never intended to be a writer-director. I just knew that nobody's going to give me a feature film script to do, so I had better write one. Yeah. And it took me a long time, and, and I learned a lot. But, yeah, I, doing someone else's... I think I might stick at writing now, as uh, directing, because I feel like people seem to like it. I got positive responses from the script way before we got to the set. So you must have some other ideas in mind then, or what you want to do? I do, but at the moment I'm focusing, I have to focus on this until Absolutely. it's done, because otherwise you get, it's easy to get distracted. No, this should be done by Christmas, the main first cut, so... Yeah, so something to talk about as well is we're now in the editing process phase. Yes. And how's that going, and how involved are you in that process? I mean, there is so much... Again, the difference between a feature film and a short film, there is so much footage that we shot. It's hundreds of hours, it's just insane. And she has to find them hope that the crew labelled them correctly I honestly I couldn't do it my brain would just be it's just so much footage I'm more involved in this than I was on the short films because then I would, you know, she can do a great edit on her own but on this one because I'm the writer director and it's a feature I just I'm more involved to make sure that the story is just playing out how I imagined it I mean we, we are completely in agreement most of the time and she'll come up with ideas that I wouldn't have thought of like we had a sequence of it's not a spoiler to say in the first five minutes he's walking along these streets and the shots were quite similar so she cut it so the street changes but he's in the same position as okay, he's walking yeah, along yeah. and I just thought that was brilliant and I wouldn't have thought of that I mean you can't write that in a script you wouldn't really think of it but she's just made him he walks and the street changes behind him but he's in the same position 
Brilliant. So things like that. When people say, uh, you know, about the auteur theory and, oh, the director did everything, it's absolute. I just don't agree with that at all. No, it's a team effort, <laughs> isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you saw it. Yeah. You saw it. How, how could I say that was all me at the, <laughs> at the manor? It'd be ludicrous. But you were the one that was organising and keeping everything together. I'm kind of guiding together. it, but yeah. I, to me, it's just another role in the crew, in a sense. That's just how it's been my role, is I'm just leading the story and leading where it's going but the person who's doing the sound uh, the person who's clapper loading the person who's just as crucial you can't do a film without them but you're the one that would say that doesn't look right to me yeah I mean the sound recorders might say well we didn't quite capture that can yes. we go again but you would get the overall vision and yeah. think I'm just, that's, that's not what I see in my I'm head I'm just protecting the story as much yeah. as possible Yeah, what's in my head and what I think it should be but also as you say it was a collaborative effort absolutely there were no raised voices there was no tension on that set a couple of people said that which I didn't even think about they said oh you've got a very nice set I was yes like, I was like have we yeah oh. you do realise you spoil us for anything else we do in future yeah. where, they, where they do have that sort of tension <laughs> no um, I mean um, the team got on great me and Rich the DP got on great so the editing process is taking place at the moment uh, we're now at the end of November is there a teaser trailer or a trailer for anybody to have a look at? There should be, there should be a teaser trailer at this point. Okay. Yes. So, so what we can do is put an item in the show notes for anybody to go and, and yeah. find that and, ha- and have a look. And please uh, send us your comments, which we'll pass on to Phil. The editing process. When's it your intention to have it complete to get the first rough cut? First rough cut by Christmas, um, and I think we'll achieve that. We've got thirty-one minutes so far, and, we, and that was only after couple of days so uh, Lucy is very quick I can't wait to get started on the second cut because I've already seen bits that I just want to trim and make better okay so you've got your rough cut you you're already thinking of the the second rough cut yeah when you get your finished film what is your next step then the first thing you have to do which I only learned about a year ago is if you I mean with when we were at uh, film school if you plug your laptop into a cinema screen uh, it doesn't fill up the whole screen you get, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it only fills up two-thirds. Is it a 4-3 ratio? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it does. So then if you letterbox it, that's what you have to do, but obviously you're not using up much of the screen. Yeah. And I didn't know why that was. Apparently, to have the full Star Wars effect or whatever and use up the whole screen, you have to have it in a format called a DCP, that the prestigious first film festivals won't accept your film unless it's had a DCP transfer, because they can't play it because they'd be playing stuff that is proper on the big screen and then they'd get to your film and it'd just go so a DCP transfer is the next step and then we do lots of marketing and see how it does there I'm hoping that we're going to send it to Cannes and then places like Sundance and Tribeca and all those and then it's going to be in the sales market to be sold and then distributed Uh, but there will be a London premiere next May we're looking at and we're looking at the Prince Charles cinema but we'll probably talk about that at a future time yeah absolutely we'll go, go through all of that and also there is the taking place next May as well is the Cheltenham Film Festival yes and I know Leslie Sheldon is looking at uh, films that reflect this area so well it definitely that does that <laughs> yeah so that'll be uh, something that we'll pick that, up on that I think we would time. I mean we were, we're looking at kind of worldwide big I mean probably is worldwide the Cheltenham one but um, I think because it's the Cheltenham festival we definitely would be interested yeah because it does reflect Cheltenham so what's been the biggest surprise for you during this whole filmmaking process 
what the actual filming of the film any any aspect from beginning to where we are now in editing what's been the biggest surprise that we finished it at all (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's just unbelievable because when i had the idea of doing it i had no experience whatsoever and to get this far determination alone uh, but with great help from talented people but yeah it still blows my mind excellent so nothing that's happened to you would put you off making another film no if you'd have asked me the day we finished i'd have said this is the last one i think i did say that but it's uh it is completely draining and exhausting and but as soon as the cameras are rolling i felt fine it's only when they stopped the waves of exhaustion would hit me again but the minute we were rolling again with the characters you know it's, it's a very magical thing creating characters out of thin air and then you see them come to life in front of you and and these actors are giving great performances and hopefully in a good story I'm, I can't wait for audiences to see it I really can't because uh, it's just been such a kind of private thing all this determination and years of work and I can't wait for audiences to sit in a screening and uh, see what their reactions are and hopefully they laugh at the right bits I'm sure our listeners and certainly the ones that we have in this area can't wait to see this as well so we will keep in touch yep absolutely and we will follow this all the way through the process definitely and we will let our listeners know where they are importantly for them when they can start seeing things absolutely great yep Phil it's been a real pleasure thank you very much thank, thank you. you it's been Cheers. great What a fantastic chap, and we cannot wait to see the film. Also, we are working with Phil on a series of pod shorts, which we will start uploading in the new year. Thanks again, Phil. That spooky music means it's time for another Lucy's Guide to the Movies and another aspect of horror cinema. Lucy, don't be influenced by Jeff. Tell him no to these horrific movies. This month, Lucy is talking about Fright Fest, a horror film festival which takes place in London over the same weekend as Notting Hill Carnival. I know where I'll be on those weekends, hanging out with Hugh Grant and Julia Robert. Well, Hugh Grant. Over to you, Jeff. Lucy, thank you for joining us again. Um, you are definitely a big hit with the listeners. They love the, the, the feedback we've had. They, they love your comments and your views on things. They side oh, more so with nice. side more with you and hereditary than they do with me. It's like listening to Neil and his bloody sports quiz. Um, so no, thank you very much for um, for for joining us. It's brilliant. So yeah. last time we spoke about things like hereditary and the witch, which we had different opinions on. And this time we're going to talk about something that I've never been to. And I'm very mm-hmm. envious because I know you, you've been a couple of times to Fright Fest. I've only been once, uh-huh. truthfully, but okay. I'm looking to go next year. So it's something that I know a little bit about and I have friends from the community. So happy to share my experiences so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, I've never been... The other two will never go within 100 miles of it. <laughs> At least. At least, yeah. So could you tell us a bit about what Fright Fest actually is and when it takes place? Yeah, of course. So it's a horror film festival in the UK. It's presented by Film 4, so it's got quite a big name behind it. It takes place every August bank holiday in Leicester Square, and it usually rotates around the venues, is my understanding. 
So I saw it at the Empire, but sometimes at the View, and it sort of moves around depending on where they can host it, I think. But it's always the August Bank Holiday in Leicester Square. That's always where it is. Okay. Um, which is good, actually, because, you know, if you're working, you know, like nine to five jobs or jobs on a Monday, you don't have to take that time off. So it's great for people to plan ahead and, you know, plan commuting and whatever into London for that event. It's a really good time to have it. I've only actually been once, like I say, but it's just, just a fantastic experience. And I think it's just wonderful to see horror showcased on a, on a big scale like that. I think it's probably the biggest one definitely in the UK horror film festival. I know we have a few. We have like celluloid screams in um, in Sheffield, but I know that this is like the biggest one in the capital. So okay. it's it's an experience for sure. So, so you say Film 4 do a lot of the um, mm-hmm. promotion on it. Now, I've seen the Horror Channel do some stuff on it as well, don't they? Are they prevalent there, or is it them just sort of making use of it for that weekend to promote their own ways? Yeah, so the Horror Channel, they conduct interviews and they do things like that for their own channel, but it's certainly Film 4 that does all of the promo and the budgeting and, and that kind of thing. You know, they, they are a huge figure, but obviously the Horror Channel would definitely jump on this. And there are a lot of publications, certainly the, the more horror-inclined ones that would go there. Okay. So I just think it's a great way for all of these guys to network. Um, and what's the range of films? Is it just commercial films that will come out maybe a couple of weeks later? Or is it sort of foreign language films, you know, low budget that you'd never normally see? Yeah, there's a right mix of them. Like when I was there, there was, there was the new Chucky film that came out, obviously, on a massive scale. There was... Right. Sorry, Lucy, to stop you there. Right, of course. for you two, oh. Chucky is a doll that kills people, okay? <laughs> right. Okay, sorry, Lucy, carry on. I know that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine, yeah. yeah. That's all, like, that, there are a lot of <laughs> franchises like that, so there was Chucky, there was I Spit on Your Grave too. you know, that controversial revenge horror film, but there is also ones that, you know, from filmmakers I've never heard of before, or debuts and things like that, so it, it's definitely inclusive in that sense. It doesn't just favour the big directors and the big franchises it does give the little guys a, a go as well so it's it's just it's a really diverse sort of festival and they do have two screens so they have the main screen and the discovery screen so okay. the discovery screen is sort of there for the the little guys you know the the smaller names the indie ones and the main screen is reserved for the larger ones because obviously they would have more of a of a platform but it's certainly you know that that's not a way of putting them in boxes it's just it's just how that worked out i suppose but i spent a lot of time on the discovery screen in my time there it's okay. really good discovery screen it's a nice name as well because you know it's very much discover you know find out new things i just love the name of it i just love it it's a great way to the amount of talent i've met at fright fest has just been phenomenal even in my one weekend there i just i met so many cool people and you know directors and all sorts so it was it was really really fun See, you've answered yeah, well, my question. My question was going to be, do they have the, do they have the filmmakers there? Yes. Yes, a lot of the time um, they will have. And I know certainly, I forgot the name of the Chucky now. There's too many Chuckies. It was whatever it was, like Curse of Chucky, I think. But they had the actors there. They had the doll there. Did they? <laughs> you know, it's all, yes. So it's all these. I don't know if it was the doll, but they had a doll on the stage, which was quite cool. And they had all sorts of, you know, people that were involved with it. And, you know, if they can get a hold of the filmmakers, the writers, the actors, then they certainly will. And they have Q&As as well. If you're a horror fan, it is the place to be, especially. And if you're, if you're a horror press, it is definitely the place to be because you've got all these opportunities to meet and network and learn more about the genre. And that's the big part of why I love it so much. Who was the person who impressed you the most when you were there? So many people, but I did have a chance to meet Andy Nyman and kind of fangirl a bit because he is fantastic. 
Um, and I knew him mainly through Darren Brown, and obviously since then he's done ghost stories, yeah, which is one yeah. of my. I, I nearly my had to do horrors. a little asterisk mm. again for these two, but yeah, that's fine. But yeah, he was probably the best person that I met, um, and, and you know, I kind of had a blast with him. But there were lots of people that I did meet. There was there's a film called Hatchet, and I met the guy who did Hatchet. Gosh, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. There's so many, you know. It's just it's a bit of a blur actually. Like when you're just wandering around and you're just you know saying oh hi love love the film loved your work and you sign this and it's just it's it's a total bustling environment. Oh, it's wonderful. All right, <laughs> is it, is it, I think you would love it. Is it a thing in horror that you just have a one-word film title? Hatchet, Chucky, Halloween, Halloween. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know, um, but he, I think you either have one word or a long sentence. It just it, it's one or the other, isn't it? Shining. You know, so either- Shining. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's God. This something. Exorcist. <laughs> Exorcist. We're going to be here all night. <laughs> no, exactly. Maybe, maybe that's it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you just, that's what horror's about, isn't it? Grabbing people's attention. So, what was Hatchet about then before we go on into anything else? <laughs> oh, my God. Hatchet is a bit ridiculous. It's about a guy, what's he called? Victor Crowley or something? And oh, it's like this yes. Weird sort of like. Yeah. Well, what's the. Like disfigured uh, guy who just sort of lives in this swamp and has a hatchet and it's a it's a slasher film essentially there's a couple um, of sequels to this as well you know that sparked well, my memory yeah. on that i've not seen them but so i watched hatchet three when i was there yeah. <laughs> like i say gosh it was 2013 i saw this it was a very long time ago but it was very you know it was it was entertaining like it's not like a quote-unquote good film but i had fun a lot of good jumpy moments, you know, like as you would expect from a slasher, essentially. Like set in the swamp, very dark, very sort of, you know, grimy. Like um, it definitely wasn't my favourite from the from the thing, but it did stand out. And, and getting to meet Adam Green, the, the director and writer, was a lot of fun too. So, what was yeah. your favourite? My favourite. I have a list actually because um, I think we were going to move on to. I've got my top five yeah. that we can talk about. But my favourite was it was one called Cheap Thrills, which is a one about essentially about a. A man who's just lost his job and he's just sort of, you know, really run down, like low on cash. And he encounters this rich couple. You know, they get drunk together in a bar and they buy him drinks and whatever. And then they're like, okay, we're going to pay you for completing a series of tasks for us because we're bored and we want some entertainment. He's like, okay. And then they just get progressively darker as the film goes on. So it, it goes from like, I don't know, like something stupid, like go and like kiss that person over there. He's like, okay, haha. And then it's like really dark by the end of it and you have to do some awful things uh and it's it's very psychological like when would you stop at that point and that's what that's what got it for me like if someone says i'm going to give you two hundred and fifty thousand to do something horrible like would you do it yeah. and it's that kind of horrible like life question that horror likes to play on and i was i was engrossed from you know beginning to end i won't ruin any of the um more darker sort of challenges for you but i would definitely recommend oh, checking it out i knew that it's called check that cheap, thrills, cheap thrills yeah it's really good it reminds it's more of a, a thriller than a horror like it's got some gross moments in it but i wouldn't say it's like jumpy or anything like that it's more like disgusting i would say like very like body horror almost okay that sounds yeah. a little bit like a stephen king story morality have you ever read that mm-hmm. yeah 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 definitely like that yeah oh Right, that's on my list then. Uh, what <laughs> yeah, else really is on really there? Good. Next on the list is a zombie film that called was Stalled. Yeah. Yeah. So Stalled is... Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit slapstick, and that's what I loved about it. It's set entirely in a office block toilet. <laughs> so how it works is it's this janitor who is working in an office block during a Christmas party, 
and everyone's you know getting merry and, and getting having drinks before they go out and he goes to the bathroom as you do uh two girls come in uh you know just to have a have a chat or whatever and one of them bites the other one and they become zombies and the outbreak happens while he's locked in the cubicle <laughs> so, <we have> to... <laughs> so, so, so he so yeah exactly so he goes how am i going to get out of this one and it is fantastic it is so funny like it is a horror comedy there's lots of jumpy moments like genuine laugh out loud moments it's so silly and it's it's an absolute blast I honestly think if you don't like horror, you would still find it funny. Well, I'm thinking <laughs> watching like, it. It's yeah. so it's so British. It's so just so like tongue in cheek humour. So so good. And that, yeah. and and that's full length. Full length, yeah. <laughs> they make it work somehow. So it's like yeah. it's like phone booth. But in a From toilet. Like, in a, in a, zone, in a toilet. In a yes. toilet. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you ever seen uh, a zombie film called Night of the Living Deb? I have, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I quite enjoyed that, and I thought that was quite a good take on it, mm. sort of uh, almost like a romantic comedy zombie film, really. Okay. <laughs> I thought. A little bit, yeah. Isn't there a lot of those, though? Isn't there well, like. Like uh, Shaun of the Dead? No, no. Isn't mm. there the one about Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, or. Well, that's not a romantic comedy, though, is it? And, and <laughs> isn't there vampire. Jane Austen with vampires as well? No, that's uh, zombies. Oh. Right, you're oh. missing your oh. zombies and your oh. vampires up here. Oh, um, what, a, what, a t- what a complete oh, what amateur. <laughs> I don't know what you were going to say then. Yeah. Yeah. How could you live with yourself? I know. It's shocking. <laughs> I've been to see Halloween. I must be into the genre now. Yeah. yeah. You see, Lucy, <laughs> just because we're old. We're certainly not professional. Um, right. more, more, more senile than professional, I think, yeah. yeah. So number three, Lucy, please get us back to some sort yeah, of normality. No. Okay, so number three, um, I believe this is a remake, and you guys might know, but it's uh, We Are What We Are, about a, a family of cannibals, essentially. And it's just a really sort of dark, like, gothic film about their, their mother's just died and the father's looking after the the children and they learn the truth about about that they're basically cannibals essentially and it's quite horrifying quite sort of like almost i would say coming of age because the, the you know that their teenagers are very much sort of learning about adulthood and and the secret that their dad's kept from them essentially and yeah i just it, 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 it just really it's really dark and sad actually Sorry. Like you're probably thinking, what the hell? Like, it's, I, it's, it's, oh, you read my mind. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's great. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, I've got to ask this. It's How great. do they find out? How do they find out they're cannibals? Uh, you can they see the film. Because she says, I hate my sister's guts. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they don't eat each other. They're, they're, not, they're not barbaric. Come on now. Yeah, they're, uh, not, they're not incestual cannibals. <laughs> oh, right. oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, no, you wouldn't want to be that. They essentially find a, um, a guy locked in their basement, I think. <laughs> like, it's, it's this crazy. Is great. It's, it's, it's very weird. Like, like I say, this, was, this is coming from 2013, so I'm probably going to get loads of people going, you've got the plot wrong. But honestly, like, I'm just trying to remember recall in my head exactly how it went down but that's what i remember from it i loved it i love kind of offbeat weird things mm. like that though so it just it, it yeah i so liked it on that theme have you ever seen a film called parents it's, no okay it's about 30 years old now stars randy quaid it is a re- and it's again it's the same sort of thing uh, uh, about cannibals and uh, the son starts to suspect his parents are feeding him meat that's not exactly what most people would eat, and uh, mm. it's a it's a social satire thing. It's but it's really good film. If you get a chance to, to track it down, 
I mean, Randy Quaid don't make that many films these days. I wonder why. And um, <laughs> but it's um, it, it's a really interesting, quirky little number. Parents. Well, Lucy, you've taken us down a different route. I, I, I didn't think. This. Right? I, I, yeah, no, the, the, this is one thing you'll learn about Fright Fest. Like, no two films are the same, and you never really know what you're going to walk into. Um, exactly. So I've gone from brilliant. I've gone from zombie apocalypse in a toilet to cannibal family. You know, there's, there's just no telling what's going to come next. No, no, we're on bated breath. Really wanting to know what comes <laughs> next. Now. Know what's next yeah. <laughs> okay, hit us with the next one then, Lucy. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, ah, yes. So the next one is Your Next, um, which you may have heard of. It's a sort of home invasion oh, horror yes, film. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That that is good. That is very good. That is very spheric and suspenseful, and just very very good. There's not a lot to say about it, but again, like with these films, you can't really sum them up without sort of spoiling it. Because with a home invasion film, it's like that's it. These masked figures came into the house of axes, and that's yeah. the plot essentially and then you just have to wait for the film to sort of uncover the rest of the of the secrets and the um and, and the twist or whatever for you so yeah but i just thought it was a very smart home invasion film because a lot of home invasion can get quite samey well, that- it's like oh plot twist it was that person and it's like yeah. you know but but this one was really really clever i really enjoyed your next well, that director's come on really good well tonight. i can't think of his name offhand but he went on to direct the guest uh, yeah the dan stevens film which i really love that is yep. it adam wingard is it that's it is that yeah his name? adam wingard yeah, yeah that's him yeah yeah, yeah. sorry Lucy, next one please final film is odd thomas based on the novel by dean Koontz, uh starring anton yelchin and willem dafoe about a psychic and it's wonderful it's actually i wouldn't say it was a, it's you know it's not scary it's got scary elements to it but it's a lot more sort of fantastical than the rest of the films like, it's a bit more sort of quirky and offbeat and nice. So it was a kind of a welcome relief from the, the horrors that I saw at Fright Fest. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read the book or watched the film at all, but it's just it's just lovely. You know, it's a lovely little book about a psychic that goes, you know, doing things and, and dealing with ghosts and stuff. And there are some awful moments in it, but it was definitely a little bit of light relief that we needed. And I think it was included in um, Fright Fest because of these more horrible scenes involving ghosts and sort of... Um, possession and that kind of thing but it was yeah i remember loving it and i must go back and revisit it because it has been a long time mm. since i watched odd thomas but yeah you liked kn- it do you know what impresses me most about this conversation mm. of four of the five films you've mentioned i've never seen never seen never heard of so uh, and I, I like to get caught out like that that's really good well done yeah yeah excellent yeah uh, but then again that's why you go to a festival isn't it you don't want to see things that are in the um, the mainstream you want to see quirky odd things that are in the genre but you know that most people haven't seen so how long did it last for you said over a weekend was it yeah if i remember it's august bank holiday i think i think i mean again it might have changed in recent years but when i was there it started on the friday and finished on the sunday sorry oh. sorry monday following oh. monday because okay. it was the bank holiday so it took place over those dates um, so again, you know, you'd only need, need to get the Friday off, really, um, and that's what I did when I went. And I and I was still living up north at the time, so I actually went down. It was my first real trip to London, and I went to this film festival with a few of my friends. And it was great, and I kind of that's kind of partially why I fell in love with with film criticism and, and film festivals was 2013's Fright Fest. Uh, I met a lot of really cool people there, and it just sort of opened a lot of doors for me. 
yeah, it's it's great. It's a, it's a festival that I would certainly recommend, and I think there's a big sense of community there too. And I think people often forget that horror fans aren't always, you know, crazy, like, weird people. They're just human beings. They're nice, you know. You, you go talk to them, they're not going to bite you, you know. And, and there's so many friends that I've met from there. And, yeah, it's just really, really nice. And it's, it's skyrocketed in popularity in the last few years, right? First. <laughs> Did you get your tickets in advance or just turn up hoping to get in? I got my tickets in advance. Yeah, I think it was a it was a present from my parents because I just turned eighteen at the time. Yes, twenty thirteen. Yes, yeah, you know, I was I was legal to see all these films and I really wanted to do it. And they were like, "Yeah, you know, well, they can be your birthday present for us to go to London and, and see all these films." Pretty pricey ticket, but honestly, for what you get, it is fantastic. Get all of these films. You know, you can go in any screening, any time, whenever you want. So you make the most of that ticket price. Yeah. And honestly, when you add up the cost, if you'd gone and bought tickets individually it would cost way more than the full pass so it is worth doing so that full pass yeah. enabled you to go into any of the films at any time then yep whenever i wanted wow. it was literally just you know get get there early get a seat and, and you're there basically you just flash your pass oh yeah so how many films yeah. did you see each day Ooh, um it was crazy because you know they started super early and finished super late so i would say about four or five a day so, you know, I didn't sleep. <laughs> I basically got up, went at like 8.30am one and then finished at God knows when, midnight, 1am probably, you know, and, and but it's it's wonderful because that's what you love doing. Uh, absolutely, and to yeah, do that yeah, and to, yeah. to, you know, spend all your time with all these, these, just spending time not in the cinema, in the pub or getting some food or whatever, which is wonderful, yeah. That's so it, it's exhausting. Festivals, as you well know, are exhausting, but it's... It's worth your time and effort if it's something that you really want to do. See, that, that's yeah. the, the interesting thing with festivals is that outside of London, it is a real struggle to catch any of them. I mean, mm. we have... Well, yeah. Here in Stroud, we had a film festival that lasted a few days last year, and, yeah, we caught a couple of things, but it doesn't have the intensity of a festival in London from from your accent, obviously, from what we've spoken about. You come from up north. Mm-hmm. Do, do they have a lot of festivals up there or not? Honestly, no. Not that I know of. <laughs> mm. Um, and it's a shame I, I know like I mentioned previously there are certainly festivals that are travelling up there like Sheffield has celluloid screams and I think I think there's one called Grim up north which is quite a great it was a great yes. title for a festival good, good um, and I forget where that is now but it is like the north quote unquote so you know you, you could get to that but not in my neck of the woods no I don't believe Newcastle has a big festival like that which is a shame really I, I, but, I agree I yeah. agree I mean, I, Bristol does a small horror mm. festival, mixes it in with the main festival, so they have these caves underneath uh, underneath Bristol, and they sort of seal you in to watch a film like The Descent. Mm-hmm. That was a barrel of laughs. That would have been... Neil, do you fancy... <laughs> going, I'll, I'll go and watch it again, Neil, if you fancy coming. No. Oh, OK. No. Oh, The try. Descent, yes. <laughs> yeah. The Descent yeah. with added claustrophobia. Is that what yes, you say? That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That would be awesome. Yeah. God, you two need serious psychological counselling, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, is there anything about this festival you'd change? I don't think I would change anything. I think I'm just full of praise of everything Fright Fest are doing as an organisation and just bringing horror to to London. And they do all-nighters now, so you could like book a ticket for... They do it at the Prince Charles Cinema, I believe. And it's like four films in a row that they've handpicked that you can go and see and you would just buy a ticket for that. And that happens throughout the year. 
And it's just, you know, that they're starting to make it more accessible. So if you can't afford the ticket to the festival itself, you can go to these events that they're hosting to make it easier for people that can that work or people that don't have the income to, you know, afford a big ticket like that. And I'm just full of respect for that, honestly, because, you know, ticket prices are so high these days. So if they can bring, you know, events like that to independent cinemas, I'm, I'm all for it, really. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just feel like, you know, certainly since I've been and, and seeing my friends who've gone in recent years, everything they're doing is, is brilliant. I just I wouldn't change anything. I don't think well, it's lads, just so, so good. I, yeah. I think next year, lads, we go. <laughs> and if you could see their faces now <laughs> it's all right yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna try and go next year for sure it's on my list yeah i really want to go wow okay yeah. you think you're up to it because it's a young person's game these uh festivals yeah uh, lucy's not I that mean, old okay. uh, <laughs> uh, you yeah, are the old jokes are the best yeah <laughs> <laughs> looking at you guys yeah. he wandered in from somewhere else yeah. we- so <laughs> so at the evening performances do they serve Coco and Ovaltine <laughs> I wish they provide blankets no. for blankets have fallen and, asleep and, and, and incontinence pants for you Neil because they won't be there <laughs> they can have them well you see that was brilliant um, we I'm definitely up for Fright Fest. I don't know about Neil and Graham. I'm no. sure I can persuade them. No. Uh, they, they're shaking their head no, but I think they mean yes. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but no, that's a, a fascinating insight. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, um, you're very welcome. We yeah. look forward to catching up next month. Cheers, Lucy. Yeah, Thanks likewise. very much. Cheers. See you later. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. 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 Nope, I won't be there either. Some of those films sounded absolutely terrifying. I am with Neil, Hugh and Julia. Okay, jackets on, lads, for the movie news. We start our movie news this month with a story related to our recent pod short about the films of World War I. Do you mean that excellent and very informative work worthy of a podcast award? (laughs) Jeff, I have enough trouble with Neil. This and his demands for a sports movie award. I don't want you starting about podcast short prizes. That's right, Graham. Jeff's podcast work fades when compared to my sports movie triumph. Hang on a moment. Why bask in that glory again? (laughs) Oh, that feels better. Let's continue. In the podcast we've just overpraised, Jeff spoke about all the big-budget World War II epics coming next year. In contrast, there will be no World War I features planned until now. One is to be made by director Sam Mendes, making his first film since his James Bond double bill of Skyfall and Spectre. Starting next April, filming begins on 1917, which Sam Mendes will make for Steven Spielberg's Amblin Company. Of course, Steven Spielberg made his own World War I film a few years ago, the excellent War Horse. The plot is very much under wraps at the moment. We don't even know if it will be based on a true story or fiction. If they go for a true story, there are many events to choose from. Our guest would be either the Battle of Passchendaele, which lasted almost half a year, or the Battle of Cambrai, which led to a massive German counter-strike. What we do know is the film is scheduled for release in December 2019, in time for the awards season. Also, the excellent George Mackay 
Pride and rising star Dean Charles Chapman, Game of Thrones, have been cast in lead roles. Talks have been going on with Spider-Man actor Tom Holland. However, his schedule looks pretty full for the next year, so he may not make the film's final lineup. Excellent news for me, as I'm a big fan. Roger Deakins has been hired as the director of photography. With casting and location scouting now well underway, I suspect we'll have much more to tell you about this film in the months ahead. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Neil. Now, the excitement for me is my film news this month comes from Wales. You're doing a lot of these Welsh reports recently. Are you going back home? He said, hopefully. (laughs) Good point, Neil. My fingers are crossed as well. (laughs) Great. It's like listening to that famous double act, and I don't mean Morecambe and Wise. No, I mean Banks and Farage. (laughs) And to be honest, I'm not sure which one of you is Aaron Banks, although I've got my suspicions. (laughs) Ignoring you both, I'll return to the news. Director Neil Marshall is ready in his next film, The Reckoning, to start filming in Wales in January. Who is Neil Marshall, I hear you cry, particularly Neil? If you've been a regular listener over the last few months, you will have hopefully been entertained by the differences on horror films I've been having with Lucy. One thing, however, we both agree on is how great the Neil Marshall film The Descent is. Since making that film, director Marshall has moved on to some excellent TV work in such series as Game of Thrones... He directed episode 9 of season 2 called Blackwater, Westworld and Lost in Space. Now recently, Neil Marshall has made the rebooted Hellboy film. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about that one. It's been moved back from January to April and we still haven't seen a trailer. Considering the high bar that the Guillermo del Toro Hellboy films set, I would have thought they would have been promoting the hell out of this one. So far, nothing except a couple of stills. Good point, Aaron. Sorry, I mean Graham. (laughs) I am still confident, given Marshall's past work. Anyway, before that opens, work starts on The Reckoning, which, as I've been ridiculed for saying, starts filming in Wales in January. Now, the film is set in 1665. To save money on changing it for that time period. (laughs) Thanks, Nigel. Sorry, I mean Neil. The film stars and has been co-written by Charlotte Kirk. Not Charlotte Church, then. Oh, laugh it up, Graham. I've already seen what movie news you've got coming. Uh, it's all fine. <laughs> the plot of The Reckoning revolves around a young widow whose husband committed suicide and who is now accused of being a witch after she spurns the advances of her landlord. As this is the time of the witchfinders and the reign of Oliver Cromwell, or Brexit as it was back then, <laughs> things do not look good for the young woman. Let's hope the movie takes a more realistic look at the time period rather than the nonsense on display in The Witch. Sorry, Lucy. One final point. Star Charlotte Kirk is definitely in the ascendant after her success with Ocean's 8 earlier this year. Interestingly, The Reckoning is being financed by MoviePass, which has set up a company to move into film production. This is their second film. Their first 10 minutes gone starring Bruce Willis is currently being filmed. Movie pass and film production, they've done so well before this. Oh, yeah, and they've, I'm surprised they've got any money left. I thought they ran out of money a couple of months ago. Who says it's theirs? Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> OK, Graham, here's what everyone has been waiting for. We can't put it off any longer. What movie news do you have for us this month? All I have to say, Jeff, is you're a bastard. I could have told you that. <laughs> yes, but you don't get Mel Gibson news every bloody month. So far this year, I have spoken about Dragged Across Concrete. That'd be good for both Mel and Jeff. <laughs> no argument here. Although the film 
did get great reviews after its showing at the recent London Film Festival. Also, The Professor and the Madman, which seems to have resolved its legal problems, boss level, and war pigs. Fantastic. The busier Mel is, the more Jeff makes sure I talk about him. Before Mel Gibson directs the World War II feature Destroyer, which, of course, I have spoken about many, many, many times, he will co-star with Charlie Hunnam, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword and Pacific Rim, and Isa Gonzalez, Baby Driver, in Waldo. Waldo is the name of a character played by Charlie Hunnam, who was once a police detective and now a recluse living in the wilderness. And I'll be joining him if I have to read any more of this bloody Gibson stuff. Waldo, however, returns to civilization to help solve the murder of the wife of a famous TV star. We believe Mr. Gibson will play that famous TV star. Does that mean he gets murdered early on? No, it's his wife that gets oh, murdered. Ju- you know, Mel's good with women, you know that. <laughs> Hope springs eternal with him being murdered early in a film. Okay, after that, Destroyer finally gets underway. And then, Jeff, you have to be kidding me. It's not April the 1st, is it? Nope, it's December, and you have the gift that keeps on giving. I can't believe I'm reading this. Even for you, this is too far. After Destroyer, Mel Gibson will write and direct a remake of The Wild Bunch, a remake of one of the greatest westerns ever. Sam Peckinpah must be spitting in his grave. That's it. No more. The rest of this movie news is to be ritually burnt. While I find a match and some petrol, let's go to the reviews. Let's get our review section underway with Neil's choice for this month, Slaughterhouse Rules. Now, this is a major surprise, as technically this is a horror film, especially as we saw it on Halloween. Now, I would point out to listeners... Our viewing was, in fact, in the daytime, as Graham and Neil had to be home yeah, before nightfall. They couldn't face those frightening trick-or-treaters. Blast those pesky kids. <laughs> Have you finished? Good. Then I'll continue with the plot of this horror comedy. Notice the word comedy. Young Don Wallace, Finn Cole, has been accepted into an elite college of slaughterhouse. Whilst his family has the money for the fees, they don't have the breeding of most of the inhabitants of the school. More like inbreeding. As a result, Don finds it hard to fit in with their bizarre rules and hierarchy. Even his more socially acceptable roommate, Willoughby Blake, Asa Butterfield, is shunned by the elites. This situation changes when a controversial fracking operation on the school grounds unleashes some very nasty and terrifying creatures. The two outcasts may prove to be the only chance of survival for everyone at Slaughterhouse. It might sound scary, so Neil, can you answer the question? Did Slaughterhouse Rules work for you as a horror comedy? Well, yes, in that there's occasional laughs and there are moments of horror. (laughs) Its problem is that it's just a collection of references to other films as part St Trinian's, part Tomkinson's School Days. That's one of the ripping yarns from the 80s for our younger listeners. Part Animal House, part If, part This, part That, etc, etc. Now... It's really not aimed at our age group, so we should consider it against that. The film was slaughtered, my apologies, by the critics. It still made me laugh occasionally. Gents. Neil, some interesting points there. Can I just pick up on your comment, it's not really aimed at our age group? It's made by a group of men, that's Simon Pegg, Nick Frost and Crispin Mills, who are all around 50 and have been making this type of material for 20 years. Their reference points are more in line with our sensibilities than the kids. But 
if it's made for more adult age group, it really didn't work at all. Now, that's something I can't disagree with. Indeed, I feel of an age where I can talk about the film. It's not very good. More (laughs) comedy than horror. And while it did keep my interest, the filmmakers were clearly working with too thin material. I'll shut up now and pass over to you, Graham. I like that phrase, too thin material. That's exactly how it felt to me. A good idea stretched out too thin. There was a good team of comedic actors and, and they worked well together, but the whole thing just seemed a little too rushed. The plot was not worked out in enough detail to maintain the story. Yes, it was fun in part, but there were long sections that dragged between the jokes. Lots of running about and screaming and a lot of the plot points went nowhere. This could have done with another year in development. In a word, disappointing. The usual suspects are good. Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, channeling yep. is in the eco-warrior. Margot Robbie phoning it in, uh, Skyping, I mean. A nice cameo like Kate Blanchett in Hot Fuzz, another reference. Michael Sheen plays a Monty Python-style head teacher, or even Molesworth, another oldie reference. And the youngsters are fine. Asa Butterfield, a standout, as usual. Do you know, I'm trying to go through this podcast and I've set myself a target of not picking on Neil. It'd be nice to Neil all the way through, right? (laughs) You haven't already. It's never going to happen. In my mind, I have. (laughs) However, I do have to disagree with you, except about Asia Butterfield, who was indeed the standout. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost do nothing here except play stock characters they've played many times before. They're just cliché. And not just them, many actors capable of fine performances are just not stretching themselves. The normally wonderful Joe Hartley plays essentially the same character she played in This Is England. As for Margot Robbie, Margot, you nearly won an Oscar this year. Why? Why? <laughs> Michael Sheen, however, is very funny. Yeah. And nice to see you have a reference there, Neil, that only us older people will get. Clearly, this film is wasted on the young. Graham, anything to add? (laughs) Oh, where do I start? I agree with everything you said, Jeff. Bloody hell, there's a first. I I went into this film with a healthy dose of optimism. Well, that was beaten out of me within the first 20 minutes. It was a waste of my time and a terrible waste of talent. Peg was okay and had some good moments, but Frost's character was just annoying. The younger members of the cast were good, especially, as we've said, Butterfield, but the rest of them had too little to do. They should have been the Scooby-Doo crew, but it never really felt coherent. What they did with Margot Robbie was criminal. Director and writer Crispian Mills, a former frontman of Cooler Shaker, and maybe should have stayed there, and son of Hayley Mills and director of Simon Pegg's A Fantastic Fear of Everything, adds bits of everything and hopes it works. Well, there's some Harry Potter at the beginning and some Shaun of the Dead at the end, wouldn't between you name it. Crispian Mills is son of revered British filmmaker Roy Bolting, who, with his brother John, once made a film called The Guinea Pig in 1948, in which Richard Attenborough played a boy from a humble background in 1940s Britain, given a scholarship to a top private school. Guys, your thought? Never mind The Guinea Pig, although it did star that wonderful Richard Attenborough. Let's look at the more satirical films of the Bolton Brothers, which this film is trying to copy, like I'm Alright Jack and Private's Progress. All Crispin Mills would be remembered for in this film is the amount of times he tries to copy Edgar Wright. Crispin, it doesn't work, mate. We just miss Edgar more. <laughs> right, calming down, moving on. Breathe. Breathe. Okay, I'm fine now. Let's look at the satirical points Mr Mills was trying to aim for. To get this film out at this time and showing how fracking releases monsters... 
is actually the cleverest and funniest joke of the film, even if it's ripped off from Tremors. That said, the school full of future Tory leaders is also amusing. I spotted Cameron, Johnson and Davis in there. Makes you wonder if they will sue. I know if there's a country left to sue, I'll be surprised. Uh, however, continuing on the positive side. There are moments where I did laugh and I loved all the local Gloucestershire references, such as the slaughters. That's enough of the good. There wasn't much anyway. Because there is little substance, the filmmakers have upped the gore content to a level where it just becomes silly. Graham, did it make you laugh? Yes, it did make me laugh, again, in part. I like the two younger kids watching the Roman orgy through the telescopic sights of a gun. Nice bit of interaction and some great one-liners. However, the laughs were interspersed with long periods of screaming and running about. So whilst there were some laughs, uh, they were too few and too far apart. The role of a director is to tell a story that is coherent and do it in the most immediate and concise way possible. Oh, hang on a minute immediate and concise. I'll need to remember those words for our next review in a minute. As for the music, sound, cinematography, etc., the technical stuff, no comment. I've spent all my time looking for references. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Attack the block. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, Neil. You stay on that surface level and look for those references. <laughs> Don't go underneath. That way the monsters will get you. I'll do that. I'll go underneath for the technical. Now, at this level, there are some pluses. French cinematographer Jean de Bourman knows how to get the best out of low-budget British movies. Look at his work on Made in Dagenham for a good example. The school grounds and woods are used effectively both in night and day. Also full marks to composer Jean Exrand, whose score is excellent. It goes from horror to action music and really drives the film. However, the special effects something to be forgotten not the best movie monsters what do you think Graham? yeah the monsters were a bit silly very doctor who and not in a good way i thought the cinematography was okay fine average functional nothing of interest usually in a film there is at least one shot of merit but for the life of me i cannot think of one in this movie decidedly average work D minus. See me later. How did you get to see my school report? (laughs) (laughs) Just sum up, gents. Well, when Simon Pegg and Nick Frost Mm. started out, their material was funny and out of left field. Now, sad to say, they're cliche and they're not really trying. To be fair, there are some funny moments within the film, but they are few and far between. Now, despite all I have said, it is not as bad as the mainstream critics would have us believe. But it should have been a lot better. I would wait for it on download or something us old folks, that's us, Neil, would use DVD. Speak for yourself, DVDs. That's just so 20th century. (laughs) One final thought before I hand over to Graham and shut up. The real reveal of this film is how much Peg and Frost held back the talent that is Edgar Wright. He is so much better when working without them. Graham, over to you. Well, wait, wait, what? You can't just drop a comment like that in the middle of a review without some explanation or logical argument. You snuck that in this review like a Mel story in the news section. What What do you mean by this? Yeah, those Mel stories always go down well. <laughs> well, OK, the Edgar Wright comment. Yeah. Well, he certainly perfected his craft with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Space and Shaun of the mm. Dead show that. After that, however, it was all downhill. Hot Fuzz is OK. What? It's just okay. It's Let's not over build kidding it. me. Ed, no, love it. No, no, love I, it. I don't kid with movies, Neil. You know that. <laughs> Yarp. Yarp. Yeah. 
<laughs> and it's like being in the room with him. Really. It's like being a murder. Such, seeing you're such a big fan of murder. <laughs> Yarp. Jesus wept. <laughs> On behalf of At The Flicks, I apologise to our listeners for that short hot the fuzz hot, <laughs> hot the fuzz Woo-hoo! for we, that short hot fuzz break uh, we, we will now return to our normal service <laughs> so we've spoken about hot fuzz and clearly we have a difference of opinion I, I don't think even you can disagree that how bad at world's end is oh yeah and freed from the constraints of peg and frost he made the underrated Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Great. Neil, I think you've seen that Great more movie. times than anybody in the world. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. And the amazing Baby Driver. Yep. A shame he never got to complete his vision of Ant-Man. That's a superhero mm. movie mm. I would have watched. Yep. So on a graph, his talent and skills would go rocketing upwards, whereas the other two, well, I don't think I need to say any more. Does that answer your question, Graham? Uh, yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> we don't agree, Actually, but yes. Uh, yeah, I don't agree on hot fuzz, but I see where you're going with that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, back to my summation. Uh, good Sunday afternoon movie, but not really worth the effort of going to the cinema. I really like Peg and Frost, and I was hoping for something more like hot fuzz, obviously, Jeff. Uh, and when they returned to the West Country for this movie, I was disappointed. In this movie, Simon Pegg eats a chalk ice. I think I'll stick with the Cornettos. They seem a lot sweeter. There have been two films this year. Terminal, which I mentioned last month, Mm. made by Margot Robbie's production company, Lucky Chap Entertainment, and Slaughterhouse Rules, the first film by Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's production company, Stolen Picture, both starring Pegg and Robbie. Terminal is now free on Amazon Prime. I think it only went out in one, one cinema. Maybe they're just flexing their muscles in the industry or just making films for fun. All in all, it's not very good. But there is some goofy fun to be had. And if you'd like to see something similar but better, there's If, Tremors, all the above-mentioned films, and Shaun of the Dead. Moving on to the next review. Hold on, I noticed you didn't add Hot Fuzz to that, which makes my point, really. <laughs> so, okay. Hot Fuzz isn't about monsters. It's about serial killers. Yeah, well, what serial killer is in the in the slaughterhouse rules? No, the well, first. one of that kid's going to grow up. The David Davis lookalike is going to grow up to be one, isn't he? <laughs> Jeff has chosen Peterloo as his review film of this month. A bit of politics from Jeff. We don't see that often. (laughs) Agreed, Graham. And Jeff was really keen to review this film, so I hoped it lived up to his expectations. Firstly, let's set the scene with our usual short synopsis, starting at the Battle of Waterloo. 1815, the last time the Swiss fought in a conflict. Is that right? Jeff should move there. They're bound to be up in arms about that. Returning to the field of Waterloo, Mancunian teenager Joseph David Morst survives the horrors of that battle and eventually returns home to Manchester, forever mentally scarred. Despite the Allied victory, the times are about to get very tough in Britain. The Corn Laws, lower wages and famine make for a discontented population. The poor get poorer and the rich richer. 
by 1819, 1819, I thought we was predicting 2019. So events were reaching boiling point and there was concern in the upper and middle classes about a people's revolt. I'm still doing 2019, aren't I? <laughs> As discontent grows, radical speaker Henry Hunt, Rory Kinnear, is invited to St Peter's Field, Manchester, to speak to a crowd of thousands, an event which includes Joseph and his family. So begins the lead-up to the infamous Peterloo Massacre. Jeff, is this going to be one of your political movie classics? Not even close, Neil. Mm. This is a misjudged misfire of a movie. It's made by director Mike Lee, who is so good with small-scale intimate projects, but clearly out of his depth here. Unbelievable characters, constantly taught with dialogue that is just exposition at best. To me, this is the cinematic equivalent of a momentum medium. (laughs) Hours of boring, humorless people who can just about grow a beard, and that's the women, telling you why the world must change until you just want to bang your flaming head against the wall, begging them to stop. What are your thoughts, Neil? (laughs) It's very slow. I wasn't aware of the history before the film, and I was none the wiser after it. The first two acts are just confusing. The third act is much better. Uh, I, I agree with you, Jeff. It was just all over the place. This was a pivotal point in the rights of the ordinary working people of this country. The ultimate sacrifice paid for the right to vote. It was terrible. It was confusing. It was overly long, poorly edited. And the direction was all over the place. Despite the absolute plethora of British acting talent, to me, all that talent was wasted. If you're going to do a political drama about an event that not many people have heard of, in fact, Mike Lee, the director himself, said he wasn't taught it at school, then you need to give the event some context. None was given in this movie. The effect on the ruling aristocracy caused by the American War of Independence and the French Revolution was not shown. And yet we see the government, mill owners and ruling class reacting with fear to the protests. What was fueling that fear? Without the historical context, the fear seems irrational. It was the American and French revolutions that was causing that. The Corn Laws are constantly mentioned, but not explained. Loads of stuff just appeared to happen with no context. I really wanted this movie to be good and was looking forward to it. But in the end, it was just a criminal waste of two and a half hours. Looks like we might be all on the same page Mm. with this one. So let's move on and talk a bit about the performances. Now, as I said earlier, they are mainly of the exposition type. People standing in dark rooms, thanks National Trust. You've got some great properties there. (laughs) Telling you what's going on outside as the only budget they had was for the Peterloo sequence at the end. For the most part, you can't tell these people apart. Generally, the better clothes they wore, the more evil they are. (laughs) That means, Neil, if you were in this film, you'd be one of the good guys. Another compliment there, Neil. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. It's good coming from you. You'd make... uh, Michael Foote looked like a male model. (laughs) Don't talk about one of my heroes like that. Um, Great actors like Maxine Peake become Mrs. Exposition, constantly telling us what's going on in the world, but seemingly having no life herself. As for Tim McInerney, he's come back to his Blackadder days in a flashback for a comic turn. It's totally out of place here. This is everything I hated about history in school, and I say that loving the subject of history. By using the actors in this cliché and confusing manner, they are not alive, they're just merely ciphers, and I've gone back to momentum again. (laughs) The only person who shows what this could have been and actually gives a performance is Rory Kinnear. 
As farmer-turned-radical speaker Henry Hunt, he has a magnetism and believability that no one else in the movie has. You see a multi-sided character. He has people's interest at heart, but knows how to play the political game. Watch how his snobbishness appears in one of the few great scenes of the film when he turns his back on his northern guests. Mm. Still not worth seeing for that one minute screen time. Graham, did any of these performances work for you? Yeah, I mean, the performance was performances were excellent. But there was just too many of them. Uh, Mike Lee tends to make small personal films about a single person, like Mr. Turner, or at most a couple of people, Gilbert and Sullivan in Topsy Turvy. So his way to deal with ensemble casts is to have all of them talking, everyone, one after another. Everyone gets screen time, whether they deserve it or not. Very little of this talking advanced the plot, though. I agree with both of you, way too many people, and as from the magistrates' royalty in Lando, it could have been an episode of Blackadder 3. Mm. Well spoken, Neil. <laughs> I wish you'd had the humour of Blackadder, though. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's move on to who's caused this car crash of a film. That's got to be Mike Lee, writer and director. Mm-hmm. His unique style of filmmaking, working with a small troupe of actors who improvise characters and script in finite detail, have served him well since the days of Abigail's Party. Along the way, there have been classics like Life is Sweet, Naked and Happy-Go-Lucky, microcosms of modern British society and its social problems. Hell in the past, and I'll put my hand up here, even I found myself warming to some of his left-wing nonsense. (laughs) But Peterloo is very different. It's an epic. You can't make it in the same way. When you merge fictional with multiple real-life characters on such a large canvas, you need to clarify who these people are. The traditional way would be by captions on screen to introduce the real people and what their role was. Instead, in Peterloo, there's no introduction other than through that unbelievable use of expositional dialogue. Quite simply, you cannot improvise in this manner when dealing with something so complex, which involves such a multitude of characters. The end result is a film that is mainly about people in rooms sermonising for 154 minutes. I'll repeat that. 154 (laughs) minutes. Okay, I'm going to stop for breath for a moment and step outside of that momentum meeting. I've just mentally put myself back in. Right, I'm back. So clearly, this film needs editing and focus. But let's move on to Lee's approach to the Peterloo Massacre itself. The staging is incredible and sets the scene well. The execution, if you pardon that pun, less so. Mike Lee is not an action director, so it lacks power with the notable exception of Rory Kinnear. Now, I'll tell you who would have done this film justice, the late Richard Attenborough. His political sensibilities, power to create breathing characters, an understanding of how to cut scenes of action, could have made this a classic rather than the leftish, limp biscuit (laughs) it is. Okay, rant batten, come in your way, Neil. I'm not sure why Mike Lee gets the build-up so wrong. The the Peterloo Massacre itself is okay. The build-up to it is really tense. It's such a shame it took hours to get there. Okay, thank you, Neil. I'll take that rant batten from you now um, before you do yourself a mischief. I... I like uh, Mike Lee's films. Uh, I thought Abigail's Party was groundbreaking. Uh, I like most of his films. Uh, not so keen on Mr. Turner. But I could see its merits uh, and the superb performances of Timothy Spald. However, 
as both of you have said, this movie is a totally different beast and it needed a very different approach. I think Lee completely cocked it up. It makes me very sad to say that. Not enough context, key plot points were just dropped in rather than being developed. Everyone had too much to say and there were too many people. Too long and too protracted to be cinematic. With a canvas of two and a half hours, a detailed, clever story could have been woven. But instead, we just have a complete mess. And sadly, I think we need to stick with Mike mm. Lee for a moment. I don't like to kick a person when he's down, asked Neil. But I think in this <laughs> instance, we need to. He said his reason for making the film is because the subject of Peter Lou is not widely taught in schools and it is a well-kept secret. And that's a laudable aim. However, this humorless film couldn't keep my interest, let alone a teenager's. There is no sense of historical perspective. We don't get to know the people involved. We have a fairly crass story going on about Joseph, who's based on real-life character John Lees, who we follow from Waterloo up to his death at Peterloo. We know this as he wears his soldier's uniform throughout. Doesn't look like he took it off for four years, which goes back, Neil, to why you'd make perfect casting oh. for one of the good guys in this film. <laughs> So while it reinforces the point that the soldiers of Waterloo were forgotten after that victory, it doesn't resonate as you don't believe in Joseph as a real-life character. To try to make it relevant, Mike Lee draws parallels to today. Some, like the imposition of the Corn Laws, parallels exactly what Orange Man is doing in America with his trade policies, are subtle. Whereas the cliché ruling parties and Crown, who are out of touch with their poor, are too obvious and just don't work. The fear of a French revolution happening in the UK is touched on, but never really explored, mm. and that's a great pity. And Peterloo also misrepresents history with its ending. The final scene has three reporters going back to London to write up their reports about the horror that has happened. Given that there is no end credit card to say the immediate effects, you would be forgiven to thinking it was the beginning of change. It wasn't. The soldiers and cavalry were exonerated in the inquiry that followed. The government passed the six acts which made life even tougher for the poor. It was many years before the injustices that created that horrible day were corrected. And there's no sense of that in the film Peterloo, and that is an unforgivable misrepresentation. OK, a ramble shouted on enough. Neil, your views, please. The Peterloo Massacre is a story that needed telling. It's a shame that the film doesn't do it justice. Yeah, all of the contributing factors were missing. The American War of Independence, the French Revolution, the Regency, the effect of the madness of the king. This was an amazing pivotal point in British history, but it seemed from this movie to be a thing that just happened in isolation rather than being the result of numerous interconnected factors. Yeah, it was just terrible. Yep. This is good. We're all on the same page on this one. Usually when somebody really dislikes the film, there's usually somebody around who would take the opposite view. You, usually. Usually, yeah. I wonder who that would be. <laughs> Fair point. OK, so now I'll surprise you after all of that and talk about something I did like about the film, other than I keep mentioning Rory Kinnear. Mm -hmm. Now, the visual effects required to make the Peter Luke crowd sequences look real were very good. There were 60,000 people in St. Petersfield that day, and to recreate that, Mike Lee had 200 extras. Just 200 extras. So it's a 19th century hats-off to company Lip Sync Post who created the crowd numbers. It looks very effective. Now, it's a shame they couldn't have done something with the poorly created cardboard swords <laughs> used in the cavalry charge. 
Graham, what's your thoughts on how the Peterloo sequence was created with effects? Uh, I'll, I'll take my hats off to the visual effects. 20th or 19th century hat, Graham? <laughs> Both. Yeah, they, unlike the director, did seem to know what they were doing. The opening scenes on the battlefield of Waterloo was well done, as was the uh, the final scene of the massacre. With only 200 extras, the final scene looks like thousands, and the soldiers running down the peaceful protesters was very well done. And you got the sense of fear, confusion, and eventually blind panic. Full marks for the technical crews from this movie. I can't disagree with any yeah. of that, guys. Yeah, thank you. And let's stick with technical for more praise. This time for cinematographer Dick Pope, who has had to create a whole array of techniques for this movie. Now, Mr. Pope has worked with Mike Lee a number of times. More importantly for this film, which is a larger scale production, he has previously worked on Nicholas Nickleby and the very underrated Dark City. Criminally underrated Dark City. Yeah. Absolutely. So the lighting and cinematography of the Peter Lou sequence is really good. It contrasts to the rather cleverly lit sequences for the inside of the overused dark houses for more and more that bloody expositional dialogue. <laughs> Only in the folky country sequences does it seem to go out of place. There it becomes like one of those 70s agrarian horror movies like The Wicker Man. Graham, your thoughts on this subject? Yeah, I, again, I thought this was excellent. Uh, it was well lit and photographed. The cramped houses for the workers, um, th they were just well, well done. Uh, there was one scene shot in the bedroom with Nellie, Maxine Peake, uh, and Joshua, uh, with just a couple of candles. That was excellent. Uh, the combination of wide-angle and close-up in the actual massacre was also well done. In addition to all of the uh, crowd scenes, they seem to have been done in camera and without the use of computer graphics. So the cinematographers get extra points for doing the crowd scene the hard way. All of that obvious care and hard work was lost because the terrible direction makes this movie even more hard to watch. I agree with both of you. Mm. I mean, the, the indoor scenes were fantastic. Yeah. It was just too many of them. Yes. So you've heard our views on this and generally not very positive. Well, what do the listeners have to say? And we have a couple of new listeners who've given us their views on Peter Lou. From Pat, Lee is a polemicist, but even by his standards, this went a bit far. This film is very, very long and could easily have been edited back. I felt that it didn't know what it wanted to be. Yes, it demonstrated how well he can do an historical epic, great costume sets, etc. But there were too many characters. Who cares that Henry Hunt was a white hat wearing narcissist or that he stayed in the home of one of the Manchester radicals? Too many characters wandering in and out for no apparent reason. Oh, and where did that Cockney white boy disappear to? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> question, Pat. there's points. Yes, plot points have just disappeared. It's yeah. weird. Yeah, and returning to Pat, the final reel is excellent, but the lead up is too slow and dreary with too many characters telling too many stories. It comes across as jumbled and confused. Pauline's view? A good story, poorly contextualised in history and drawn out. Far too long at over two hours, 30 minutes. Nevertheless, the passion and anger of Joshua, Pierce Quigley, and the wider community is palpable. Whilst Joshua's wife, Nellie, beautifully played by Maxine Pete, is desperately trying to keep her family together as they endure years of poverty. Thank you both. You were certainly kinder to the film than we were. OK, lads, sum up time. Peterloo was overlong, historically inaccurate and, well, a bit boring. 
To be fair, I know the history of Peterloo now, but only afterwards because I found out from Graham Patton Pauline. <laughs> As I said earlier, I went into this movie with very high hopes. I like a lot of Lee's other work, and this was a point in history that I knew about, but not in much detail. Jeff and I have talked and moaned a lot about this movie, and I think we came to the conclusion that David Attenborough would have done a far better job of telling this story and putting it in the right context. Graham, sorry. I- Richard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do. Although that said, I do think <laughs> David would have done a better job. In fact, it could have been the Peterloo version of Warhorse. So oh, that's now David, David Attenborough. The and soldiers the- are waiting to <laughs> attack. Oh, this only- is a critical part of the process. Um, I mean, it was in the right family, at least. <laughs> Give me a break, guys. Yeah, unlike Director Doyle. Oh, shut up. Okay, uh, I did say David. I meant Richard. Okay, uh, an important moment in British history, poorly covered and a missed opportunity. I just, yeah. Without doubt, one of the biggest disappointments of the year. Although hearing David rather than Richard did make me smart. <laughs> Unless, of course. You're a left-wing, lean-in, middle-class oh, newspaper, okay. at which point you'd call it a masterpiece. The failure of this film comes down to one person, Mike Lee, we're looking at you. <laughs> Rather than making history come alive and inform you of a subject that is not taught in schools, he has made a monotone, cliché, and incredibly boring film. You should come out of this movie energised by the injustices done. Come to think of it, I did. To the injustices done in the name of cinema. OK, if you want something better to watch and as my mate Neil would say, watch anything. However, here are a few targeted examples. Gandhi. Richard, no, it's not David. Attenborough combines the epic and the intimate, featuring a masterclass of a performance from Ben Kingsley. Happy Go Lucky, the type of film Mike Lee should be making, moving and powerful, with great performances from Sally Hawkins and Eddie Marsden. Waterloo. If you want to see the battle enacted with more than five men, two rifles and a cannon, then this 1970 (laughs) epic is for you. Oh, and also you understand who everyone is and their role within the story. And, very rare, get a a quick glance at the Swiss fighting. Uh, Braveheart. Oh, good grief, no. No, no, no. (laughs) Really? Braveheart's not as as good as Peter Lou. No, Braveheart, in comparison, is a masterpiece. Yep. Yep. So, for everyone else... I can't believe film, I said that. Uh, for everyone other than Graham, this is a or film me. which combines the epic and the intimate successfully. And Graham, get that blue off your face. You're not a bloody smurf. I so, c- can I add blue planet then? <laughs> so as Graham cleans up, let's go to his review of the month, which by the law of averages must be better than the other two. It's Widows, the Oscar-winning director of 12 Years a Slave and the writer of Gone Girl combine forces to remake Linda LaPlante's 1980s British TV series. Neil, you must have been in your 40s when the original version of Widows aired. Didn't you do sums at school? (laughs) Uh, In Welsh. But moving on, for the film version of Widows, the story's been moved from London to Chicago. Harry Rawlins, played by Liam Neeson, is the leader of a very successful criminal gang. However, their luck runs out when the police are waiting for them after a robbery in which they have stolen $2 million. In the ensuing battle, all the men are killed and the money destroyed. Days later, Harry's widow Veronica, played by the excellent Viola Davis, Mm. gets a visit from local criminal Jamil Manin, Brian Tyree Henry. It turns out Harry stole the money from him and he wants his $2 million back as he needs it for his political campaign. 
Jamil's enforcer tells Veronica she has one month to return the money or face the consequences. Looking through Harry's notebook, where he left the plans for his next heist, Veronica comes up with an idea. She contacts the other widows and enlists them in her plan to follow through on a $5 million robbery. However, for such high gains, there are high stakes. Graham, did this critically acclaimed film work for you? Oh yeah, it certainly did. This is a great heist movie with an incredible cast. It's got a good story and enough twists and turns to keep you guessing right up until the last minute. After Slaughterhouse Rules and Peterloo, I was in real need of a cinematic pick-me-up. I just knew it was going to be a smart movie from the very opening scene. This is before we get into the corrupt politicians, double crosses and strong women regaining their lives. We have a black wife and white husband in bed together. I was shocked that this was so blatant in modern day America. From 12 years a slave to this, it was so poignant, so political and razor sharp. Mr. McQueen, you're a bloody genius. But... Back to the movie. Uh, Viola Davis was the standout as the cornered wife fighting two massive personal tragedies and the demands of a very violent gangster. The only thing she has going for her is her strength of character. She is the ultimate survivor. Her man done her wrong, but she's not going to sit about crying and playing Billie Holiday records. She's going to do the impossible and get out of a jam her man has put her in. That man being Liam Neeson, who is playing a heartless villain for a change, not chasing his daughter across the world. (laughs) This movie is driven by a great story, which has been honed into an excellent screenplay by Gillian Flynn. I liked almost everything about this movie. Uh, In particular, the script was honed to perfection, people were introduced in the right order, characters evolved, and the action and threat mounted as we moved through the film. Twists and turns happening at interesting places... Just great, just great. Gents, what were your overall impressions? Like you, Graham, I desperately needed a film to impress me this <laughs> month, and Widow certainly does that. Steve McQueen may seem an odd choice. I still see him on a motorbike trying to jump into Switzerland. <laughs> but oh, directing a film of a British TV series from the 80s, do you know what? It's a good choice. It works on the surface as a thriller, and it works underneath with many statements about women, politics, and the world in which we live today. Who would have thought the 80s would have come back in such a good way? Did it work for you, Neil? Hell yes. I did wonder where the film was going at one point, but there's a number of twists. Uh, The four widows grow into villains, and Viola Davis even manages some blackmail gripping. Yeah, I I have already mentioned Viola Davis, but the entire ensemble cast were excellent, particularly the principal women. Michelle Rodriguez was great and very believable, and new actor for me, Elizabeth Debicki, who starts as a dumb blonde character and soon develops into an objective-driven central character. I enjoyed her transformation as we moved through the movie. Finally, our old friend from Bad Times at El Royale, Cynthia Erivo, as the fitness freak and all-round badass Belle. The threat in this film came from two directions. Both these threats are families, the political Mulligan family, played by Robert Duvall as the father, and Colin Farrell as his son, and they are completely corrupt and evil squaring up against them politically are a couple of gangsters hoping to move into politics the manning family brian tyree henry and daniel halua poor old viola and her crew are smack in the middle of these warring factions do you know graham i'm not sure i agree with you about some of that i don't think that duval and farrell are are evil Uh, they're corrupt and racist of that there's no doubt 
However, evil is a strong term in this context. Mm, maybe. I, w- I would go with the far as they're self-obsessed, like another leader I could mention. <laughs> <laughs> it's the other family who are clearly corrupt and hide behind religion to do it. Anyway, I digress. Let's go back to the acting. It is a fantastic cast, all at the top of the game. However, and, and you've said it as well, the real standout is Elizabeth Debicki, who plays an abuse victim who fights back in a believable manner. Casting agents find another role for this outstanding mm. talent now. No more second string in Guardians of the Galaxy or a voice in Peter Rabbit, as good as that was, for okay. this star in the making. <laughs> as, you, as you said, Graham, Viola Davis is excellent as always. Liam Neeson plays well against type. Mm. And full marks to Brian Tyree Henry for playing a villain who's a sort of iron hand in velvet glove. The rest of the cast are great. But to me, they don't really stretch themselves or what they would normally, against what they would normally do. Mm. Neil, who stood out for you? All were good. But for me, Elizabeth Debicki was a standout of the widows, while Brian Tyree Henry as Jamal Manning created a genuine sense of danger. Both excellent. Yep. And the rest were fine. I couldn't agree with you more with you. Okay. Um, excellent direction from Steve McQueen. I'm still having problems with his name you know maybe it's just an age thing the other steve mcqueen's been dead for 38 years great in that motorbike getting into switzerland <laughs> trying to anyway yeah uh, i keep having to call him director steve mcqueen anyway this new mcqueen guy knows how to tell a story cinematically if i have one tiny complaint it was maybe that it was a little bit too long however it's a complex and involved story so it but it still seemed to zip along it was long but the time flew by for me the twists at the end were really clever mm. yeah i'd agree it is a little too long however for his first thriller mr mcqueen does an excellent job there are layers here like all great thrillers nothing is what it seems and there's an absolute kicker of a twist he starts with a bang and the robbery that goes wrong slowly tightening the noose on viola davis as she now finds herself in an almost impossible situation when you look at steve mcqueen's other films this transition to what could be called a traditional contemporary thriller is amazing a bit more trimming and this could have been a classic that said it's still a first-rate feature what do you think of the look of the film Graham? oh yeah i i was impressed director mcqueen uh, turned again to the cinematographer worked with him on 12 years a slave uh, sean bobbitt in this movie he again delivers some great work uh, the bright exteriors of chicago in the summer contrasted wonderfully with the dark interiors of the abandoned industrial unit that the women use as their base of operations and the interior of mulligan's home more great work from mr bobbitt and the tracking shot from the bonnet of the car showing how close the poor people live to the rich in chicago again another little bit of subversion you know, I have trouble with the name of Steve McQueen as it obviously conjures up other images Steve in my head. Steve Bobbitt. Yeah, with the name Bobbitt is even worse. Oh, don't go there. So, I, I think I'm going to gloss over that. Um, for those that don't know, check Google uh, and cross your legs. Um, yeah, Sean Bobbitt's work here is excellent. That almost chrome metropolitan look gives it a level of coldness which matches the characters. Excellent work. Okay, we have some comments uh, on the film from Phil which picks up something that really impressed me about the film. Throughout the film, there are many social and political statements, says Phil. It is inconceivable that women can do the job of a man. Is politics truly riddled with corruption and crime? 
There is one particular clever shot where we see Mulligan and his aide enter a vehicle and hold a conversation whilst they are driven from a rally back to Mulligan's home. The camera stays on the bonnet of the car whilst we hear their voices from inside the car as they travel the short distance from the rundown neighbourhood where he is running for office and the plush suburban mansion he lives in. It managed to be disorientating and brilliantly clever at the same time. Okay, guys, time to sum this one up. Your final thoughts? Uh, brilliant. And just what we needed after the previous two disappointing films. I'd just like to mention one other thing. Hans Zimmer's excellent score. Yeah. It's yeah. driving and tense. So different what we would normally call the Zimmer sound. Mm. Indeed, at times, it reminds me of Ennio Morricone. As for Widows the film, a little bit of editing, and this could have been a classic, as I said earlier. That said, a clever plot, stylish look, and wonderful performances certainly make this worth your money if you're going to catch it in a cinema. Easily our film of the month. Mm. Right, whilst this movie is based on an old ITV series, it felt like a very modern drama. Splendid performances from every member of the cast. The pacing was spot on. The twists and turns in the story were great. I did not see any of them coming. This is just a great movie. If you liked Widows, uh, then here are a few other heist movies with major double crosses you might also like. The Lady Killers. Very funny vintage heist movie and a true classic. I hope you mean the Tom Hanks version directed oh. by the Coen brothers and not that awful one with Alec Guinness. Yeah. No, the, I mean the awful one with Alec, Alec Guinness. Guinness from e- it's an Ealing it's comedy. It's dreadful. Still it's funny. Classic. classic. Ealing comedies. It's, it's oh. the cinematic equivalent of watching paint dry. Oh, good, good. Give up. Go back in your box. Right. <laughs> yes, that's a, yeah. Maybe we should say that more often. Yeah. Um, the Italian Job, the original 1969 with Michael Caine, not the 2003 Mark Wahlberg. I'll agree remark. with you on that one. Oh, no, right. Good. good. Um, the Sting, classic with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Heat, Michael Mann's seminal work. And Reservoir Dogs. How many times have we recommended that movie in the last 11 months? Seems a lot. Hey, maybe they could remake The Sting, but with women. So you'd have, like, um, I don't know, Helena Bonham Carter and Kira Knightley in the remake of The Sting. <laughs> Perfect for the Me Too movement. Oh, give it a break. Right. Okay. There was, that, a, there's a piece of music. Finished. I have a bit of music. Thank oh, God for that. He's, he's out of his box again. He's, yes. Yeah, let's uh, nail the lid down, would yeah. you? Okay. With the reviews now complete, let's look forward to what's coming up in the world of cinema. Who better to tell us about that than Cineworld manager Steve Wright? Jeff, as usual, takes over the conversation twice because we didn't record it the first time. Just don't forget to mention children in need. In fact, do it first. Over to you, Jeff. Hello from your At The Flicks team. This month, as we approach Christmas at an alarming speed, we return to our local Cineworld Cinema for a chat about what's coming up with Cineworld Manager Steve. Let's look at the festive period and beyond. Hi Steve, welcome back to the show. Hi guys, how you doing? We're doing very well, and you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Excited for the uh, Christmas releases we've got. So, before we get to the films, let's talk about something a bit more important. Your Children in Need appeal. Now, I'll be honest, we're recording this before the actual event. It's actually the week of Children in Need. So we're looking for an update as to where we are now, and of course we'll give final tallies 
in our next catch up with Steve in the new year. So, Steve, where are we? So, we're doing really well. As a cinema, we've raised just over £1,800. Yeah. As a company, we are f- rapidly approaching the half a million pound mark, wow. um, which is fantastic. We are hoping to you know surpass that and that will beat the amount we made last year my tattoo that i'm sure all your listeners oh yeah heard on previous podcasts all about has been decided i'm keeping it a secret for now i am booked in with my brother who's a tattoo artist to get that done it's actually a very cool design there were some not quite so cool ones in there they were donated by my staff trying to uh, I think just stitch me up a little bit but uh, thankfully one of the better designs was drawn out that'll be happening early December I would have thought once my brother's less busy so even though you give them very clear guidelines of what they could and couldn't do they tried to work around it yeah they found ways so I I specifically said no writing no offensive (laughs) images or language of any kind so instead they just went with the most ridiculous things they could think of I mean one of the designs was Ralphie from The Simpsons but as Pikachu (laughs) so uh, I'm quite glad that one didn't come out but yeah they tried to really stitch me up but I will put posts on our Facebook page and we'll link to that as well when are you expecting to get the tattoo done? Uh, I'm hoping early December How's Rob's challenge coming along? So Rob is really close. His his target was £250 to get his head shaved, Project GMRT as we affectionately call it. <laughs> Just need that final little push to get it over the finish line. So for anybody listening, and this is going to at the end of November, will they still be able to put into any donations? Yeah, so we're going to leave open our Just Giving pages um, right the way up until the end of the year. And on the day itself, are you going to have events around the cinema? So there's going to be a few bits and pieces going on, mainly challenges again. Um, Somebody's mentioned about some potential leg waxing. I'm not getting involved with that. Uh, Yeah, there'll be a few other bits and pieces going on. Lucky dips, competitions for the children. We also have a potentially a quiz coming up very soon uh, based around Harry Potter for the release of Fantastic Beasts so that will raise extra funds as well so there's lots of different last minute bits going on Uh, just keep an eye on our Facebook page for details let's jump on to films so Christmas will soon be with us although of course The Nutcracker and the Four Realms and The Grinch have already opened and are playing they're great films however you've got some real blockbusters up your sleeve to finish off the end of the year what have you got for the run up to Christmas I mean it's going to be an insane Christmas we're so used to having the Star Wars around about this time and we haven't got that and so everyone was like what's going to happen (laughs) oh no what are we going to do it's like the the slate is incredible Uh, as you've said we've already got the Grinch and Nutcracker and the Four Realms which opens just this week really really popular already uh, Mm. especially Nutcracker it took me by surprise actually I didn't really know too much about it other than we were getting this film and it's been really popular over the opening couple of weeks uh, I'm glad of that it hasn't done the business it sh- I think it should have done in the States but the rest of the world is really good and I th- Neil and I went went to see it uh, we both thought it was really good Kira Knightley is just brilliant in it so into early December the 7th of December we've got the old man and the gun not the three old men and a gun <laughs> so, as you can tell I've been listening to your podcast yeah no that's bit. very good that yeah. uh, so the, that one's the 7th of December and we are confirmed as to get in that one now so we're really happy about that 
14th of December. A couple of big releases around this time, actually. So first of all, to please all of our comic book fans, we have Aquaman. DC characters there. I'm the other side of the coin. I prefer Marvel. But, uh, you know, I think Aquaman is one of those characters that often gets ridiculed. Especially yeah. in things like the Big Bang Theory, they always take the mick out of Aquaman, and Jason Momoa has made Aquaman cool. Yeah. Plays it really well, he looks the part, he's just phenomenal, he's got that dry sense of humour yes, that the, comes through. The one-liners I've heard from the trailer I've seen, yeah. it just looks great. Yeah, the guy's fantastic, I think. Same sort of time, 8th to the 13th, we've got previews of Mortal Engines. That one right. has now been confirmed as well and then officially released on the 14th. So Aquaman's going up against Mortal Engines. And then also the same week, for the the smaller comic book fans, we have Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. From the trailer and the short clip I saw at the end of Venom, looks brilliant. Uh, Animated, it's all of the different Spider-Mans from across the Marvel Universe all kind of colliding into one. And Spider-Pig. And and Spider-Pig, yeah. Everyone seems to focus on Spider-Pig, especially the smaller children (laughs) from The Simpsons. So, nice little nod there from them. Then we move into the big one, the week before Christmas, so the 21st, but we are going to likely to be having previews of Mary Poppins. Yeah. It's got the nostalgia feel for the older generation, and I grew up with you know the Disney films, such as Mary Poppins, phenomenal. I think Emily Blunt looks incredible in the title role I was worried I hate it when they recast people mm. then they've got Lin-Manuel Miranda who is flavour of the month at the moment anyone who's a musical fan uh, sort of the West End and Broadway stuff he wrote Hamilton the hit West End and Broadway okay. show and he kind of plays that Burt role in this he's going to be great he's there I think because his voice is incredible if anyone's not heard him sing ever go out check out his stuff especially the West End stuff and not too many people know he wrote a lot of the music for Moana as well I didn't know that so uh, yeah he did a lot of the songs from that and he's been heavily involved with some of the songwriting in this so I think it is going to be fantastic it's going to bring new generations into Mary Poppins world and what I like about all three of those films they're going to go big at Christmas without a shadow of a doubt as they're not festive flavoured they're going to run and run aren't they yeah I think these especially Mary Poppins Mortal Engines I think they'll run into possibly even early February Mm. uh, which is incredible any film that runs more than eight weeks in the cinema has done really well for itself I've been working in cinema nearly 20 years now and I can only think of a handful that have managed to hit the magical 12 weeks because usually DVD releases are 12 weeks after cinema release the most recent one being Great Showman that yeah. just became a juggernaut and I think Mary Poppins could do exactly the same it's got the musical feel everyone seems to love musical films at the moment mm. it's got the nostalgia it's going to bring all the new younger children in to see it and I, it's just going to run and run and run now you've had the opportunity to see a bit more than the trailer haven't you you've got a special event now I've seen a couple of extra bits but the boss has seen a lot and he has turned around and said that this is going to be amazing everyone seemed to be worried is it going to do the original justice and he said it absolutely does um so much so he was a not a fan of the original he'd seen it he liked it he said this one 
is phenomenal. Um, so the footage I've seen, I'm not going to give too much away. No, no, my, my only question would be, how did Emily Blunt come across? I think she's she plays it perfectly. She's got the voice down, the very sort of matriarchal role that was there from the original. Um, she doesn't try to change the role too much from yeah. how it was played first time around. With, and she looks the part as well. You know, yeah, I've seen I that in the that's trailer. that's the really important yeah. thing is she had to look and sound the part and she plays it beautifully. If she doesn't get an awards nod of some sort for it, I will be very surprised. Yeah, I mean, she's had a great year. I mean, there was the qu- uh, A Quiet Place earlier on in the year. It was a massive hit for her. Yeah. And now this. Yeah, I mean, A Quiet Place, phenomenal film. Obviously this. I've heard that she's got a couple more films coming out sort of mid-next year as well, so she seems to be really on the rise. So, one of my favourite things at Christmas is to go out on Boxing Day and get away from the family before I kill them. And... (laughs) There's usually yeah, some uh, absolutely, uh, <laughs> and there's usually some cinema treats opening. Then, have you got any this year? Yes, absolutely. We have not really comic book, but I suppose it kind of is. We have Bumblebee, the spin-off from Transformers. Mm. Yeah, I think it looks really good. But this spin-off, it's still got that typical humour from him in there. I think it's going to be one for to suit all ages, especially the families. But also, and at the moment, we are 99.9% certain that we're getting this, Holmes and Watson. Yet another Sherlock Holmes film. No. I grew up with the young Sherlock Holmes. I loved it. Yes. Um, and every time they seem to do a reboot or a remastering of some sort, it seems to get better and better and better. I loved the one with Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. This again has taken another angle on it, and I think it'll do very well. On Boxing Day for me, Transformers Three would have been the perfect film <laughs> to get out of the house. So, but yeah, Bumblebee and particularly Holmes and Watson, absolutely, I'll be looking for them. That is an absolutely tremendous end of the year. And then we go into January. We hit up and running with the start of award season. And you kick off from the 1st of Jan, I believe, with the favourite. Yes, Emma Stone. It looks good. It's not really my cup of tea, but I'm sure there will be some fans out there. I I think so. I mean, when I heard of it, it, it sounded like a costume drama. And then I looked at the trailer and I thought, this looks genuinely funny. Yeah. It looks, yeah, it, it looks different. And to be fair, a young lady from Canada I was exchanging tweets with on the weekend had seen it and was saying how brilliant it was. So, good. Well, I've, I'll add it to my list. Uh, I've not even seen any trailers yet. The only thing I've seen to do with this film is the poster because it only came in this week. It's going to be closely followed by one that I'm really looking forward to, mainly because whenever I used to visit my grandparents, always on telly massive fans of Lauren Hardy yes so Stan and Ollie that is the 11th of January it's been confirmed for us now so I'm really happy about that we've just put the posters up which look great the cast looks phenomenal Uh, John C. Riley, he seems to be just amazing at the moment he can take on so many different roles again and he plays the part brilliantly the chemistry between the characters is played perfectly it's exactly what i remember from sitting there as you know sort of four or five years old with my granddad having it on in the background so it's kind of quite nice for me as well it's got that nostalgia for me and takes me back to my childhood so that's definitely one i'll be going to watch and i think again we could see some serious 
awards. Oh, I, I think that'll clean up a BAFTA this year without the shadow of a doubt. I'm not sure about America, but I think over here that's going to clean up. Yeah, certainly over here, again, I would agree. I'm not too sure if the Oscars are going to pick up on it. Uh, we also have The Front Runner comes out the same date, the 11th mm. of January. Don't know too much about this one, so maybe you guys yeah yeah it was uh funny i remember the real life events it was um yeah bob dole and uh, unfortunately all these sort of skeletons in his closet now this is a time when politics when you had skeletons in your closet it would end your political career which is completely different to today <laughs> and um it, it's just the the tragedy that unfolds around him uh, i hear hugh jackman again is going to be in the running for best actor award for for this it played really well at the London Film Festival for me anything with Hugh Jackman yeah. in at the moment is going to be huge yeah. I thought he was great as Logan and Wolverine great showman for me mm-hmm. uh, it's my film of the last 12 months I absolutely loved it me and my kids have watched it so many times now that actually I want to throw them out of the car every time the soundtrack comes <laughs> on they start singing along going back into December and I know you have a lot of special one day events coming up what have you got planned throughout December for the connoisseur crowd that comes in for these art events? So, as we've spoke about before, we try and do quite a lot of the live events, uh, whether it be the operas or the ballets. Uh, we do have the Nutcracker. That's tail end of November that that one's on. I think the big one is going to be A Christmas Carol. We've just had this confirmed with Simon Callow. He is brilliant in anything he does on stage yeah we've just put the posters up now it has been confirmed and tickets can be purchased for our website for that we've also just had an extra showing of uh the king and i we've just put in an extra showing on the 13th of december because it's so popular it's sold out within the first hour of going on sale and and one of the other popular events that i really love are the one day showings of classic films and again we come into Christmas have you got any planned or is it too early to say yet there is some talk of a few Christmas classics some more modern day classics so there's talk about potentially Home Alone for one of our movies for junior screenings but again nothing confirmed as of yet there is a lot of demand at the moment for us to show probably the ultimate Christmas film uh, which is Die Hard Die Hard, yeah, that yeah. would be for me. No, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful life. There we go. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. Although I would come back and say Die Hard is the ultimate Christmas film. Yeah. It is Die Hard a Christmas film. Yeah, yeah let's yes. not start yeah. that argument. No. Let's not start that argument. So yeah, it's a wonderful life. There's a lot of demand there for it. But as I say, there was talk about many different Christmas classics, uh, sort of one day specials, but nothing set in stone yet. Keep an eye on our Facebook pages always, okay. and we'll update on there. With it being Christmas, is there anything you want to bring to the attention of our listeners? Any special deals for over Christmas? Maybe something they want to get as Christmas presents? So, yeah, for me, the gift of cinema is the perfect present. So we've got a multitude of things. For the you know people that visit the cinema every now and again, we've got our gift cards. Anywhere from £5 up to £200 can be loaded onto those. Just come into the cinema, grab a card, take it to the till. We'll load it up with however much you want some very festive wallets that those gift cards can be slotted into to go into then Christmas cards they're as not well. time specific are they? 
Uh, it's 12 months so as right. long as you've used it within 12 months then that's absolutely fine it can be used for tickets food absolutely anything so we've got those we then have our Christmas gift boxes now this is your all in one package it's two tickets and a food and drink voucher for one of our combos and again all you do is come in grab the box it comes in quite a nice presentation box that Excellent. you can then wrap up and send off for the family and then for the uh, die-hard fans like yourselves, the constantly in the cinema, I think I see more of you guys than I do see of my own family. You're in here so much. Um, we've Hello, Uncle Steve. Got the, uh, <laughs> we've also got the unlimited gift boxes. So this is a membership um, scheme. It's a monthly subscription usually, but you can pay for the entire first year for someone. On top of that, there's an exclusive screenings for unlimited card holders, one of which we have coming up very soon. It's so secretive that not even I have been told what it is or when it is at the moment. Wow. But there will be, uh, we often do secret screenings where we don't even find out until the day. Advanced screenings two or three weeks beforehand. We do the discount on all the food and drink, 10% off of that. And then if you sign up for a second year, that changes to 25% so all of those boxes are available from our foyer you can also purchase the e-gifting through our website if you're looking for that present for all the family or you're a little bit stuck pop in and see us and pick up one of those we certainly will well Steve we've taken up enough of your time thank you very much indeed you know we got that Christmas rush to get ready for now absolutely and I look forward to catching up with you again in the new year thank you have a um, great Christmas yeah likewise to you and to all the listeners just uh, thank you for listening into this podcast and thank you for you know our loyal customers as well have a great Christmas cheers thank you thank you very much thanks Steve some great films there that I really want to see Back to the present, and let's talk about what else we've been watching. We had an at-the-flicks trip to the local Cineworld to watch Bohemian Rhapsody. I thought it was awesome. Obviously, it's the recollections of the remainder of the band, but for all that, it's a worthwhile trip to the flicks. Rami Malek is perfect as Freddy, and Mike Myers plays an EMI exec, the composite of several real people, complaining Bohemian Rhapsody is too long and not the type of song where teenagers can crank up the volume in their car and bang <laughs> their heads to. And if you haven't seen Wayne's World, why not? Bohemian Rhapsody is worth it for Rami Malek alone. Spot on. Uh, Outlaw King on Netflix, Robert the Bruce versus Edward the First's son. Edward the First was in poor health by this time. It's quite good, and Chris Pine keeps his Scottish accent going most of the film. The final battle at Loudon Hill is really well done. There's a bit at the end that nearly ruins everything that went before, but if you can forgive that, it's an okay film about the Bruce. The Grinch. Disappointing. I prefer the Jim Carrey version. Sorry to any of those who don't. So this one didn't stand a chance. It's charming and funny, but lacks a certain something. The Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Excellent. Apart from when we first see Kira Knightley, incredibly annoying. Then the story takes a twist and it all started to make sense. Great fun. Uh, for me this month, I have uh, a couple of things on TV and some movies. Um, like Neil said, I really enjoyed my Bohemian Rhapsody as well. Lots of critics complaining that it's too light and doesn't delve into 
uh, Freddy's darker side. I think it was fine for a 12A movie. If you want darker, then you can read any number of biographies about Freddie Mercury. I also watched an old Bond movie, Licence to Kill, starring Timothy Dalton, as research for a spot on the Nicky Price show on Radio Gloucestershire. I had completely forgotten about this movie and was surprised at how ahead of its time it was. Bond becomes a rogue agent and battles to take down not a supervillain, but an international drugs dealer. It has aged very, very well. And I finally got to see Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace, this excellent follow-up to Winter's Bone. Brilliant movie about outsiders trying to fit into the modern world. I actually watched it twice. It was that good. On TV, I've just started getting into season two of The Gifted, or as Jeff would call it, superhero crap. And that's correct. And by the way, does it have a Stanley guest cameo appearance? No, it doesn't have a Stanley. He could be in the ashtray these days. <laughs> oh, oh, that's terrible. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Please leave that in. I'd love to see the user comments. <laughs> Do you know, he's done four more cameos for the next films coming up (laughs) this is on fox in the uk and whilst it has a number of uh, filler episodes it's moving forward with a central mystery i'm enjoying it a lot following comments from listener deck and watching the informer on iplayer just watched the first episode i must say it's started well finally castlevania on netflix which is an animated series about the battle between the vampires and the church, written in such a way that the vampires are not just one-dimensionally evil, but have grievances and motivations. You mean like Brexiteers? (laughs) (laughs) Animated horror. Oh, it's exactly like Brexit. Um, Maybe watching Carpenter's Halloween has affected me more than I thought. Well, for me, as always, cinema, TV and radio choices. Although, listening to that, Graham, I have to say... It's not too big a step from Castlevania to Suspiria. Bloody is. (laughs) Okay, for cinema, a fantastic woman. A great selection from the Stroud Film Society. The winner of this year's Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. It's a tale of the persecution of a transsexual in Chile after a family tragedy. Wonderful performances. And while this country may not be perfect, and you only have to look at the news for that, thank goodness it is better than the world displayed in this film. The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, which Neil's already mentioned. And indeed, we're now in the middle of the Christmas movie rush. And this charming tale from Disney, unfortunately, failed to find an audience. I would recommend seeing it in 3D. The opening shots swooping over Victorian London are breathtaking. The film then becomes a sort of take on Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And it's helped by an hysterically funny performance from Keira Knightley. Don't let this get lost among the bigger features this Christmas. It's well worth seeking out. Hunter Killer. A submarine <laughs> j- drama with that excellent actor, Gosh. Gerard Butler. Who, <laughs> yeah, who right. Graham is planning some movie news on yeah, in the yeah. upcoming months. It's going to be forced to read. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's a surprisingly good film, mainly because Gerard and co-star Gary Oldman leave the action to others. They sort of stand around shouting a lot. Uh, in in fact, in Gary Oldman's case, all his lines are showing. That said, this film shows a world with a female American president and a moderate Russian leader. Now, I don't know about you guys. Fake news. But I think that one's better than the one we're actually in. And I bet Britain stays in Europe in that one as well. Anyway, for TV, Doctor Who. Yeah. Now, I haven't finished it yet. 
But so far, it's been really good. Jodie Whittaker makes her an excellent Doctor. And the Rosa Parks episode is one of the best Doctor Who shows ever. Yep. I'll have more comment to make on this when the whole series is complete. For radio, the Quandahorn experimentation. Andrew brilliant. Marshall and Rob brilliant. Grant, the it's creators of Red brilliant. Dwarf, yep. have created this wonderful pastiche of the old Quatermass series. Graham's already mentioned this in mm. an earlier pod, and I binged it over a couple of days. In a world where it's always 1952, Quandahorn and his team have to battle all sorts of strange creatures from this world and others. The comic gem in the middle of all this is the captured Martian Gurk, who learned to speak English and has all the mannerisms from Terry Thomas. It's inspired. <laughs> it's really funny. It's really funny. As for next month, it's our end-of-year special, so there will be no reviews. Instead, we will be presenting our combined top ten films of the year. Jeff will have the turkeys, and I'll have the crackers. That's right, Neil. You pull one and make sure you get that bang. Oh, also... <laughs> also... No <laughs> does in my mind. Also, Phil and now. Lucy will be giving us their top five films of the year and their verdict on whether this has been a vintage year or just a bottle of Fulham beer. Oh, that's a, that's a low blow. That's a low Absolutely. blow. Absolutely. As Cardiff aren't exactly higher. Yeah, yeah. They are higher, Neil. They are higher. They yeah, are so they're exactly not exactly higher. They are higher. They are exactly yeah. much higher. Yeah, yeah yes. exactly. <laughs> okay. It's what everybody's been staying on for, the quiz. <laughs> It's a Christmas quiz to go with Neil and his pulled cracker. <laughs> From someone who's clearly overlaced his Christmas pudding. No, the niceness has now gone. Don't bother put that mince pie out this year, Neil. You're certainly on the naughty list. <laughs> OK, to the quiz. And Phil, I think you'll find this festive fun a bit harder. Five questions to think about over that lunch. Number one. What was written on the jumper of the dead terrorist in Die Hard? The ultimate Christmas movie. Yeah, agreed. Number two. What was Father Christmas known as in The Nightmare Before Christmas? Number three. What does Dan Aykroyd hide in his Santa Claus suit in Trading Places? Number four. Which Disney film did the creatures watch in the cinema in Gremlins? And the last question. What is the name of the town in It's a Wonderful Life? So, peace on earth, goodwill to all men, and you, Neil. <laughs> so, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap, and another At The Flicks is in the can. So it only remains for us to say... Happy blooming Christmas, and remember, those lights in the sky are not the star of Bethlehem. <laughs> Speak to you all in the new year. Happy winter solstice, yuletide and Saturnalia. And to everyone else... Thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye.